welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm David Bax. I'm Scott Nye. Filling in for Tyler Smith, who was on assignment. Uh, we are not going to do a whole top of the show thing. How you doing, Scott? So sleepy. I feel like I haven't seen you in days. I know, and I haven't had any sleep <laughs> since I saw you, so... Um, that's interesting. I've gotten plenty. Uh, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but we're, yeah, we're going to be talking about Sundance, um, and all the, all the fun stuff we saw. Um, and, but first I've got, we gotta, we gotta pay these bills. We gotta keep the lights on, uh, here at, uh, Casa BP. We do have more Uh, than one light on at the moment. Yeah. And in order to keep them both on. Right. Yes. That's why there's two ads. We're going to need two ads. Uh, (laughs) Uh, This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I just lost. Screw up your email. I got an email while I was reading that one and it like. Oh, you got like the notification accident, like tapped on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's happened to me so many times before. (laughs) It's so disappointing. My gosh. We're going to start over on that as soon as I can find. You know, they have the search function. You can yeah. just find the exact okay. email you want. The, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated, uh, curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is friend of the show Rodney Asher's Room 237. That's a good movie. It is a uh, yeah, it's a very very good movie uh, about uh, it's a, it's an account of different people and their uh, interpretations of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Um, th- that also, in a weird way, almost kind of works as a horror movie on its own, um, and it's also very funny. Uh, also available is Tom DeSillo's Living in Oblivion. Uh, that's, Never seen it. Um, oh, it's a comedy about uh, making independent films. Um, mm. it's, uh, Sounds it's, insufferable. <laughs> I think it's like ahead of its time or at the forefront of it, like the vanguard of its time okay. enough that it's it's the movie that all the insufferable movies are like living, right. trying to live up to. I can dig it's it. It's a very good movie. Um, that's a, a hilarious film about the perils of filmmaking starring Steve Buscemi and Catherine Keener. I also, it's not on here, but I just, because I'm a movie, uh, you know, I'm not just, uh, uh, hawk, hawking this stuff. I'm also a movie, uh, subscriber and right. I got an email, uh, yesterday or today, uh, that they have a movie with one just added is a Spanish film, I guess, documentary called, um, dead slow ahead. Um, sounds familiar. And it's, I say, I guess documentary because it's just not a fiction or narrative. Basically the director just like was on board a cargo ship as it traveled from, I want to say, I can't remember where it set off to, but on its way to Spain, like from Africa to Spain or something. And it's just a bunch of shots of people or machines or cargo, or it's just like an hour and 15 minutes of like, shots of this ship and the noises of the ship. And it's really, really cool. I like that. Um, yeah. Um, I saw it a couple of years back at the, I saw it at the, uh, what's it called? The Steven Spielberg theater at the Egyptian. Uh, oh yeah. The little room. Uh, <laughs> it's very little actually. It really, it really is. Especially in comparison to the Egyptian. Uh, yeah. Uh, also don't forget to lover for a day is that's Philippe girls lover for a day. Still playing in select theaters in Los Angeles, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, New York, and Oklahoma city. Uh, it will be opening next week in Santa Fe, Philadelphia, uh, go Eagles, Baltimore, and Miami. For more information, go to loverforaday.mubi.com. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Retention. You can try Mubi free for a month 
just go to mubi.com slash battleship to redeem now. And I also want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com and their, their wonderful uh, earbuds. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great, and more importantly, they sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. Today I was listening to uh, uh, the, the guy who's what, the main producer on Kendrick Lamar's new, uh, new album uh, put out his own solo album. He goes by the name uh, Boken. B-O-K-E-N. Uh, and it's a terrific, wonderful album that I was very glad to be hearing through my tweakedaudio.com uh, earbuds. They're available for a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay. All right. Bill's paid. Lights, we can leave them on. I'm not going to sit here in the dark. Uh, we're going to talk Sundance. I was there. Scott, you were there. And also... Wait, for- other people were there? You're telling me it wasn't just you and me. <laughs> I, I saw one or two other people. You're blowing my mind. Um, but also there was a friend of the show, Dan Gavazdan. Hi, well, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, I should, I should have said Superior Spider Talks, Dan Gavazdan. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's fine, too. Uh, I, I, I'm more famous for my one appearance on this show. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's funny. You've only been on the show once. I feel like it's more because I feel like we talk more than I talk to people who have been on the show more than that. But yeah, just the one time. Now it's twice. It won't be the last time. I feel like I'm crashing an intimate setting here because you guys did that other show together, and now I'm here. Um, what, what do you mean? The preview episode? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you're you're taking Tyler's place, or I guess Scott's taking Tyler's place, and you're taking Scott's place. I'm not uh, sure. It's a competition in the room all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, I'm right where I always am. Yeah. The chairs don't have names on them for a fact. You know what? You got me. You got me thinking now. Maybe the, <laughs> the chairs. We should get some director's chairs. Uh, made here. All right. Let's talk about what we saw. Uh, first off, any overall thoughts about the, about Sundance 2018? Uh, This was my third. Scott, this was your third. Dan second, second. Right on. Did you, so you went last year or did you go some other random year? I went two years ago. Okay. Uh, yeah, you caught the real, the best year I think that we've been to so far was two years ago. You think Manchester? Yeah. And what else? uh, Love and friendship, uh, which Uh, I didn't see there. What was the other big thing? Oh, Certain Women. Uh, Certain Women, which ended up making my top ten. Yeah. As did Manchester, I think. So, yeah, you're right. Two Strong years ago was the... Uh, Speaking... Two, I'll say Certain Women and movie to be named later, two years ago and this year, my favorite movie is the last movie I saw in both in both cases. All right. Uh, all right. It was also the last movie I saw. I know what movie you're talking about. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it when we get to it. I think uh, on on the note of you listing those movies that were really big at the festival, my takeaway is there didn't really seem to be a big consensus 
hit at this year's festival. I heard yeah. a few titles here and there, but you know, the year of Manchester by the sea, it's all everyone yeah. was talking about. And this Although, there was you know, no that's consensus. That's not true though. Yeah. yeah it was because, the year of the birth of the nation. Oh, well that's <laughs> because true too. When that yeah. played Sundance, that was the film. And when I came back from Sundance that your coworkers were asking me like, did you see birth of a nation? No one cared about Manchester by the sea. Yeah. It's, it's funny, but, uh, but I would say like going in, like two years ago going in, I knew there's a new Kenneth Lonigan film. Yeah. You know, and last year, I don't know. What's this? I feel like there was something last year, uh, but I'm, now I'm drawing a blank on, on what it was. I mean, I know but I was looking forward to calling you by your name a lot. Um, I don't know if other people had the same level of That wasn't even on my to-see list oh, last wow. year. I ended up, you know, moving things around and cramming in before I had to take a shuttle back to the airport uh, I mean, uh, last year. There was also the new Alex Ross Perry, which at the time was much anticipated, and then everyone saw it, and it was not good. No, I think it's good. <laughs> uh, and also the new Smith Brothers movie last year, uh, Walking Out, which is so good, but no one... Yeah, no one cares. I care. Right. And people who know good movies care. <laughs> um, but this year, I guess there was less going in. I feel like there was, like, I knew there was a new Gus Van Sant, but I'm not as big a Gus Van Sant fan as our friend Scott here. Yeah. Is, so I'm always but cautiously feel, optimistic about him. And I feel like the consensus is he's kind of past his prime anyway. So the idea that he was suddenly going to unleash a classic, and right. I feel like many people were expecting that. Um, I but, had a really uh, difficult time planning what I wanted to see. You ended okay. up seeing a ton of stuff. How long were you there? I was there for five days. How many and I saw you see? 16 or 17 films. Okay. I saw 15 in five days. Oh, wow. I had 13 in three days. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's. Uh, uh, anybody else? Sorry. I, any, uh, any other overall thoughts? No. Good time. Um, you yeah. should go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People should go if they can. It, it was. It was really cold uh, this year. It wasn't as snowy as last year, but it was very cold. By Sunday and Monday, it was pretty tolerable. Okay. Um, so let's just, I guess, we're just going to go through these uh, alphabetically. Some of them more than one of us has seen. Yeah. Some of them only one of us has seen. And so the ones that only one of us has seen, unless we're super over the moon, we should probably try and keep it short. Um, which is what I'm going to do right off the bat. I saw Elon and Jonathan, Elon and Jonathan Bogarin's 306 Hollywood. Uh, which I talked about in the preview was the first documentary to ever play in the next section at Sundance. Um, it, it was a letdown. Did you, you, did you see it? No, okay. but you guys really sold it to me on the yeah. last show. And <laughs> so I really wanted to go see it. And then you told me, yeah. ah, it's fine. And yeah. I was like, okay, I don't need to see this. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, the, 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 the premise, which is that two people, uh, a brother and sister who are the directors, uh, treat their late grandmother's home as an archaeological dig to find out more about her and their family is not bad, but the movie is way more concerned with being being precious and cute than, than with the 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 ideas of like memory and identity and 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 legacy that it's uh, really about. So let's move on to a movie that was on a lot of people were talking about, although I'm not sure I am interested in seeing it, and that's Assassination Nation. Yeah, I saw that one. Okay. Um, I went for a number of reasons. Mainly, there was a lot of talk about it. Yeah. And the director is Sam Levinson, Barry Levinson's son. Hmm. And I grew up in Annapolis, where the Levinsons live, and I guess are from. Um, and so I know, you know, one of the Levinson children, and I thought, well, okay, this should be interesting. Um, you know, I, I guess I didn't really think about the Levinsons very much, uh, like other than knowing them as local filmmakers. But um, boy, this thing really blew me away. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sold, I think, for $10 million, um, which is a pretty yeah, big pickup. Yeah, I have a list of like 
acquisitions and sales, but I'm not seeing. I don't know why that one isn't on there. It's not updated. IndieWire lets us down again. Right? <laughs> oh, because it's a two page. Oh, look, come on. You got to open a that's new my tab. Fault. Okay, yeah. Second tab. Yeah, my fault. All right. Don't be so quick to besmirch IndieWire. <laughs> that's all I, all I have to say. Um, uh, okay. But yeah, this movie was. Uh, I'm still wrestling with how I feel about it. Uh, being, especially I'm a high school teacher and it's about like high school culture and it, it was eerily accurate. And uh, what I'm wrestling with is whether or not it really champions what I consider the like worst part of high school culture. And I, to that point, I feel like this is the first movie I ever like I've seen that really made me tr- feel truly old. Okay. Like it was uh-huh. made for a generation well past, you know, well younger than mine. Uh, in a way that I found kind of refreshing and exciting. And uh, the filmmaking was uh, stunning. It's like, I, I'm trying to think, like, it's like Spring Breakers meets Heathers, if, if you will. Okay. Um, but it has this one tracking shot that I've never seen anything quite like, where they uh, do this home invasion in one shot. Uh, where there's a track built around this home and a crane on that track, and we only see the home invasion through the windows of this house as it circles mm. around it. And I've, okay. I've never seen anything quite like it, especially well, in... Well, it sounds similar to the uh, uh, the the motel shot in Reno 911 Miami, <laughs> the Reno 911 movie, but that doesn't go in circles, so I guess it's not as, as cool. Yeah. Anyway, it was a pretty stunning, um, and to me maybe the first film that it seems almost intentionally made in this political era, um, as like a representation of okay. what's been going on. I mean, you know, film takes a couple of years to respond to things. Right. And I felt like this, like, wow, what a, what a response. Um, uh, did you find out who picked it up? Uh, yeah. Neon. All right. Neon picked it up. I know we're not supposed to support them, but they do put out good films. Wow. Well, I don't know about this. Why aren't we supposed to <laughs> Because Tim them? League, like, started it. And, no. I, see, I'm so, like, not... I know, but there are some people who are so upset about it. They're like, how can people be going to see these movies? Like, nobody knows this. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's how, not on uh, anybody's radar. Yeah, yeah, I'm very not clued into that. Um, all right. So another one that only one of us saw, I think, uh, Scott Beirut. Yeah. Brad Anderson. I saw it too. Okay. Oh, yeah, Brad Anderson. All right. Jones. Yeah. So this is, we talked about this in the preview episode. It's uh, directed by Brad Anderson, uh, written by Tony Gilroy. Turns out the script he wrote was in 1991 and they just kind of revised it like a couple years ago for production. So it has a lot of early nineties kind of tropes to it. Uh, but for, the premise, which is essentially about a guy whose life got ruined in Beirut in the 70s, who has to go back 10 years later to get one of his friends out from uh, captivity. Uh, if that premise sounds interesting to you, it is the most that premise kind of movie <laughs> you can see. And John Hamm finally gives a good star performance, which goes a long way in selling it. Uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. I'm a bit more lukewarm on okay. it, but, but it could have been that this was my fight sleep movie. Ah, um, do it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I think it's beautifully shot and uh, and well acted, in, especially from John Hamm. I, I would have liked to have more characters like representing the city of Beirut. Yeah, that's um, part of what I mean by the early nineties. Were, were you there for the premiere of this? Yeah. Did you were you there for the question of um, have any of you ever Q&A. been to Beirut? <laughs> and the answer was like 
it was precisely no. Yeah, and sure. you could you could hear the audience like quickly turn on the filmmakers. <laughs> um, this woman next to me like burst into like she just started shouting vulgarities. All right. Apparently, had spent time in Beirut and was very upset about it. Um, I don't know much about Beirut and and the depiction of Beirut. Right. And they suggested they studied it for a while, but I could see where someone might find it a bit, uh, you know, in, in, uh, inciting. I, I don't know, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought it was fine. It it didn't. I don't know. I I I find Brad Anderson interesting, but I've never felt like any of his movies have ever gotten to the point of, like of of love for me. I actually feel like this is his least interestingly directed movie. I'm going to disagree. That it was well shot. I think uh, one of the things I thought is that if it had made into the early '90s, it would have had a little bit more polish. Now it has kind of the. Uh, inherited TV aesthetic of a lot of shaky cam, a lot of setups. There's that scene where they go back to visit John Hamm's like old home that's been bombed out, and it, it's a good scene setup. But they have like 15 shots of coverage that they dart <laughs> around trying to capture it, and none of them are the right shot to capture that scene. <laughs> and, and again, it could be me like uh, falling asleep right, because totally. I remember that scene and thinking, "Oh, I think this is really beautiful." <laughs> um, specifically that scene, but uh, it, it may just been that like I was only catching one of those 15 shots right. <laughs> at a time. Um, all right, should we move on? Sure. Because uh, uh, I'm very excited to talk about, uh, well, yeah, weirdly, uh, the only two documentaries I saw we're talking about right at the top. This is uh, the only one I saw. Uh, Robert Greene's Bisbee 17. Did you yeah. see it, Dan? You know, I hate his last film so okay, much, right. I, I'm not interested in this well, one. I never saw Kate Plays Christine, but I really liked Bisbee 17. It's my, okay. uh, probably my number three of the festival. I was a little shaky in Kate Plays Christine, and I still liked Bisbee quite a bit. It's uh, uh, it, it's uh, I guess it's a look in documentary terms. It's in theory, it's a look at the town of Bisbee, Arizona, and uh, the 100 year anniversary of uh, a pretty rotten event that took place there, where nearly 1,200 um, striking miners uh, and and labor organizers were rounded up at gunpoint by uh, deputized townspeople and put onto cattle cars and shipped across state lines into the middle of the desert and left there and told, if you come back to Bisbee, you'll be killed. Um, I mean, essentially they did die in the desert. Most uh, of them, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Um, But that's, uh, that's not Robert Greene's film is not that straightforward because he's not. Okay. I was unclear, Scott. Okay. The recreation that was happening was that happening anyway as part of the centennial? No, I mean first we should introduce our dear listeners to what's going on, which is that they are uh, kind of staging a reenactment of right. the event. Yes, um, and no, because you can see notices put up. It's like a documentary crew is staging a recreation okay. of the event. They're looking for people to come play. But yeah, that, okay. Now, now I see. Yeah, you're right. Because, the, but there are also other centennial-related things, like the the yeah. signposts and banners and stuff. That was the town doing that, right? That's not Robert Green. I don't know doing that. I mean, I can't imagine it's something that the town was eager to celebrate outside of somebody uh, coming in and, and kind of poking them. Yeah. Are these recreations part of some kind of? Uh, film that they're making in the context it's of the movie, the film Bisbee Seventeen. Yeah, okay. So it's 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 a documentary about its own making in some sense. There, what uh, is with this new genre of documentaries <laughs> about know, movies am, you'll never see? I am here for it, okay. but it's not for movies you never see. It's for the purpose of the movie you're watching. Oh, I I understand that, but there's all these movies that come like documentaries that come out where they're making a like narrative movie inside the documentary, but we never really get to see that narrative movie. And I love it. Like, are Captain, we ever going to see them? Yeah, the exactly. One, yeah. I, I love that movie too, but is that, is that movie in the movie really a thing? <laughs> 
I, I think you gotta let go. <laughs> I, think it's I, I don't know that I can. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's like a version of a movie where it's only meant to be watched with the commentary track on. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I, I think it. So in doing in doing this this way, and by doing things like having the shot start and end before the take does, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, so you're seeing the people preparing or just standing there or whatever. Um, it, it sort of becomes more about, it's not, it's less about the Bisbee deportation, which is what that event is called. Um, and more about how the town exists now with that in its, in its past and yes, how it, how it views itself. Um, and it gets to, I mean, speaking of like movies for this time, I mean, it gets to a lot of the arguments we're having now about the role of authority and law and order and the role of class systems and, uh, race relations, yeah, uh, worth mentioning, 90% of those 1,200 deported right. were foreign-born, most of them either Mexican or Eastern European. Yeah, and there's a ve- very kind of nativist, I mean, it's uh, improperly placed nativism because, as they point out, you know, the white people came in there and uh, stole the land anyway. But Yeah, yeah there is a, 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 one of the guys who's playing the me- one of the Mexican miners yeah. who become, is one of the main townspeople focused on... Arguably the, the main, yeah. yeah uh, Fernando is his name. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's sort of talking about as well as you know as a mexican like we're seven miles from the mexican border this was mexico before it was yeah it was that, spain and then it was mexico and the, the border US. crossed us kind of thing was that quote in the movie uh, yeah so um it's the white people who are the immigrants from where his ancestors are standing right and there's very much that strain in the people they talk to today who still defend what the uh, sheriffs did a uh, hundred years ago which seems unimaginable but it's the same you know excuses you always hear about how they thought they were doing the right thing at the time as if that matters to anybody uh-huh. um and that you know they thought they were gonna have a riot on their hands and all that kind of protectionist stuff uh yeah um but it's like, and then but further complicating things is the fact that this strike happened the strike at a copper mine happened in the midst of world war one and right. therefore was a you know directly undermining the war effort yeah. which you know tends to piss people off i suppose so <laughs> um so it's a, yeah it's a thorny subject but i think you say people, there's really only one guy, I think, in the 2017 time who is still saying it was the right thing to do, the old company guy. No, because there's a company guy, there's also the sheriff who plays the sheriff in uh, the recreation. And they talk about but, see, but even he, during the recreation, when he's sitting there in the car alongside them holding a gun, a fake gun, even he seems to, and there's other people who play the the the, the deputies who sort of seem to come across it like at least like the way this was done was yeah they start coming around but i'm yeah. saying at the beginning of the movie okay. he was voicing those and he was like voicing active support for the sheriff he's like i'm proud to be playing this guy he did the right thing is this sheriff character like the act of killing kind of revelation where doing this caused him to rethink well it was 100 years ago so it's not, it wasn't that same well, guy, oh, okay. guy. Well, yeah okay so they're playing yeah but the the sheriff uh lived in tombstone because this was right. He's the county sheriff, and Tombstone, I guess, was the county seat. Sure, uh, <laughs> I don't understand old timey <laughs> jurisdictions. Uh, yeah, but there's also a whole part in where they go to Tombstone, and you see sort of how they how they have commodified their yeah. history. It's really fascinating. Anyway, we can't spend forever on yeah. the 17, but you've sold me on it, though. Yeah, it's my uh, my, my number three of the festival, for whatever that's worth. Uh, next up is Clara's Ghost, which I definitely heard mixed things about. Yeah, I think I texted you, avoid it like the plague. 
Um, yeah, this is one I saw, and my wife, who attended the festival with me, turned to me halfway through the movie and said, I don't think I've ever hated something more than I hate this right now. Um, and I kind of agreed with her. Um, but this is, it's directed by Bridie Elliott, who is um, Chris Elliott's daughter, right? Right, and then stars yeah. the whole Elliott family, uh, oh, okay. specifically her mother um, in the lead role, who I think is the weakest actor of the three, or of the four of them. Okay. Um, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, there's definitely interesting things going on in this movie. It kind of is a story about this family um, and they have a kind of a drinking party night at their home uh, where Haley Joel Osment shows up, uh, who I quite actually liked in the movie. Um, and the mother begins to like kind of not begins to notice, but is going through a moment of realizing how much her family kind of excludes her from, um, their, their kind of, um, celebrity status. Like all of them are, you know, comedians of some sort. And she is just this, you know, Hmm. I guess your, your archetypal mother figure, non-celebrity. Um, and that coincides with her seemingly discovering a ghost, um, which, if that sounds really out of left field, it is It is equally out of left field All in the right. movie. The ghost maybe is in the movie for a minute and a half uh, <laughs> of screen time. And I, to this moment, cannot explain to you what it was, what it was about. And it's, it's one of those movies, um, I don't want to compare it to The Room, because I don't think anything can really compare to The Room. But it's one of those things where it's more interesting what the movie reveals, like, in its existence about the director than the movie itself. Oh yeah. Um, because these characters are drinking alcohol the whole movie and getting into this kind of like alcoholic frenzy, just incredible drunkenness. They're locking themselves in rooms and breaking doors down and knives are pulled out, (laughs) but it's all done with this kind of like jokey, non-serious attitude. Um, and it gets quite disturbing, but the movie never really acknowledges how disturbing it is. And so it makes you wonder, like, what's going on with this director that they couldn't acknowledge just how, like, bizarre and strange and treat these right. situations with that kind of l- level. And so... You're making me want to see this. I know, it yet. sounds fascinating. No, I know. <laughs> Everybody I describe it to is like, oh, I want, I want to see it. And I'm telling you, you don't. Uh, uh, but that's, like, my justification for staying there and watching it through. Oh, okay, I can how get something out of this. I think, like, 80-some minutes. See? Uh, I feel like I'm going to go for it. I know, I know, I know. I, I feel horrible doing this. I, I really... I really don't mean to make it more interesting. I think maybe what's interesting is my take on it, not okay. the actual movie. Yeah. I do like movies that accidentally reveal things about their makers that they don't intend to have in there. So, well then maybe, maybe you'll like <laughs> it, but I, I'm telling you it's, it's a, it's a slog uh, right. at 80 some minutes, uh, enough that my wife afterwards was like almost ready to cancel Sundance. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Um, Moving on, you know what just occurred to me? What's that? Completely off, was that uh, last year at Sundance, Call Me By Your Name was the last thing I saw, and that ended up being my favorite. So all three years, damn, the last movie I saw, a precedent has been set. Is my favorite. That's yeah. That's a that's a streak. Pressure's oh. on next year. Yeah. Uh, um, let's move on to Colette. 
Yeah, uh, I was looking forward to this movie because I enjoy period pieces, I enjoy the French culture, and I enjoy Kira Knightley, and this has all three. Uh, nevertheless, I wasn't expecting to like this as much as I did. Uh, it's directed by Wash Westmoreland, who mm-hmm. is one part of the two director team who made Still Alice, which I thought was a fine movie, mm-hmm. not exceptionally well-directed, but interesting enough. Uh, and I figured this would be kind of a basic kind of coverage biopic glamorous kind of thing which would be pleasurable on the surface but not uh terribly well done uh sadly uh washington's partner both in life and in work uh richard glatzer passed away in the intervening years uh so it's westmoreland's uh solo debut uh but he really attacks it with tremendous gusto uh it's exceedingly well-directed. Even before he mentioned in the q and I thought of Max Ophel's uh, in terms of that kind of fluid camera movement and just the knowledge of how to really block actors in a productive way that advances the story and tells us something about the way they interact with people and lets the actors set the rhythm of the scenes. That alone is incredibly refreshing these days. And like I said, with Beirut, most movies are shot mostly with coverage so they can decide the rhythm in the editing. But here he knew... Uh, the whole way through with the kind of movie he was making. He let the actors do their thing. He directed them on set to move it a certain way. And yeah, I mean, besides Max Elfels, I thought of Lubitsch. It kind of has that same kind of light touch um, that I think a lot of people were kind of in some way dismissing saying it's very light and fun and frothy, but the degree of accomplishment in doing that is it's, it's so rare, especially these days to see that I was tremendously admiring of it and just enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, so it starts Karen Knightley as the French writer Colette and uh, Dominic West as her husband, who's kind of this overbearing figure, but they stayed married for a long time. And the movie to its extreme credit doesn't, totally paint her as kind of like a pure victim. You know, you see why she stayed in this marriage. You see how charming he is, how well they get along, how they improve each other in some ways. Um, and it, it's a really nuanced take at the, that kind of marriage that especially in modern films, you don't see as much um, where it feels the need to paint somebody as purely victim or purely uh, antagonist. Um, it's a really mature, thoughtful and extremely fun film. Ah, well, it was acquired by Bleecker street. Yeah. So, so it'll get mature, a good theatrical thoughtful, release and, handsome yeah it's kind of their their brand i know um so i yeah I, I hope i hope i get a chance to see it uh all right i'm up next i think i'm the only one who saw joshua marston's come sunday i saw it too okay you did see it i didn't care for it i did not either a terrifically performance by chiwetel Ejiofor, for uh completely wasted by a movie that is uh repeatedly unwilling to get into the messy stuff that Chiwetel Ejiofor seems to be trying to get into with the character. The premise, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's based on a true story, uh, which was also a, uh, this American life episode and this American life are still producers, which probably explains why this was so, uh, bad spineless and spoon feeding. And <laughs> was, was this their first <laughs> movie or uh, sleepwalk with sleepwalk me? The first. Sleepwalk. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Chiwetelogy 4 plays uh, Carlton Pearson, a bishop who uh, in uh, Tulsa, right? I think in Tulsa. Yeah. Who's a big success. He's got a huge, like, maybe not quite a mega church, but a very big church and a TV, you know, broadcast. Um, and he flies all over the country, you know, uh, preaching and trying to save people and stuff. And then he has this revelation. God speaks to him or whatever uh, and um, tells him that all people uh, have been saved, that basically everyone's going to heaven no matter what which is um, actually not a new thing. 
Uh, it's called, I looked it up, it's called Universal Reconciliation. It's been around for like six or 700 years, this idea. But within the milieu that he's preaching, uh, it is a new thing and it turns a whole lot of people off and he loses most of his congregation, loses a TV show, loses a lot of his money, and uh, but stays the path despite his own misgivings and um, I thought that that world was well constructed. Like I felt like I understood sure. all the people in his orbit uh, think, that he had yeah. to deal with. And I think much like with um, Maria full of grace, Joshua Marston's first film, uh, he is showing us a segment of society that he maybe knows the viewer isn't familiar with, but isn't telling you how to feel about it. Do you know what I mean? I thought like, it was very even handed uh, in its depiction of this Christian world. Yes. Yeah. There were no but, villains per se. Well, that's my problem. Is that there were? Is that with uh, Oral Roberts and with J.D. Ellis, played by Martin Sheen and Vondi Curtis, all respectively, two great actors? It does feel like it's making villains where it doesn't need them. Um, I'm not some. I'm, I'm not eager to defend Oral Roberts or J.D. Ellis. Uh, yeah. I don't actually know much about J.D. Ellis, but uh, I feel like the movie doesn't trust enough that its internal conflict will be. Uh, enough to keep it going. And so I do think like it builds up the Robertses and the J.D. Ellis and the general sort of council of black bishops as antagonists that it doesn't need. I, I can see that a little bit, but I, I felt like they were given enough time to make their point of view. I mean, it, all of their opinions seem to come from a place of caring, even if they're totally wrongheaded. They 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 worry about their you know their right. people going to hell. Like it's a for them, it's a real fear, even though it might not be for you and I. Um, and I felt like those stakes were like well illustrated um, to a certain degree. I, but then yeah, I don't want to give much, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be describing specific scenes. Sure. Still, it's coming out on Netflix in April. Yeah. Um, and then it'll, on April 13th, by April 20th, everyone will have forgotten it. <laughs> my problem is, is, is different. Uh, my problem is that this big revelation that he has is almost entirely off screen as if he just watched TV one night and discovered that mass genocide existed. Uh, right. And then the scene does, where he talks to God, we don't even see, I don't think. Um, well, I think he's being, uh, I think he's, I think that's supposed to be the scene where he hears God's voice. Oh, yeah. Um, when he's watch, you know, watching the Rwandan uh, uh, war. Um, and, but uh, I do think with, with the thing with his, so his, his uncle, Danny Glover plays his uncle um, as someone who dies without having been saved. And then he, sees all these poor Rwandans. Uh, I don't, that sounds sarcastic, you know, <laughs> they are literally poor. Um, and they're Rwandans and they've, they're being killed by the millions and they're not saved. And so I, I, he makes a connection, but I, I also feel like the movie makes the connection a little too easy. Almost like it's, it's setting these things up to knock them right. down in a yeah. way. Um, I really think it's a terrific lead performance from Chiwetelo Ejiofor and uh, some good supporting performances from um, Lakeith Stanfield and Jason Segel uh, and Martin Sheen and Vonnie Curtis Hall. I mean, Vonnie Curtis Hall is barely in it, but I always like him. Um, but I think it's it's wasted on a movie that I think spends too much time over-explaining or taking the less bumpy route. I don't want to go into this whole okay. like sub genre of conversation, but you know, you mentioned it was a Netflix film uh -huh. this year. I saw many Netflix films 
uh, at this festival. Yeah. How do you guys feel about? I don't know why I'm picking on Netflix in particular, or these streaming services. No, I, but but there is something strange I have to admit about I, seeing a movie that's already been acquired that will come to my home very shortly. I will pick on Netflix in particular because I'm not against streaming services in general, but Netflix I think treats their product like product to a point that really offends me as an art lover. Uh, and I feel like something like, uh, the Meyerowitz stories, just, they throw it out for what felt like a few days. Yeah. It's the thing. And then, uh, I guess no one's picking up on Meyerowitz stories. And then like, it's, you have to go digging through digital, Hey, but Hey, you know, uh, haystacks to find the movie again. It's this part of this is just, I hate their interface. I hate it so much uh, on my Roku. Um, but, uh, uh, it is a bummer to me to see there's another movie coming up. That's a Netflix movie. That was my second favorite of the entire festival. Um, and I am bummed at the thought that it will end up being treated like the Meyerowitz stories. I didn't see any Netflix movies at the festival and I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> uh, well, one of them was really good. Right. Sunday is not the one, right. unfortunately. Um, all right. Uh, moving on. Another one for me. Um, I was very excited to see this. Um, I guess if I'm keeping a running tally, this was maybe my fourth favorite of the <laughs> festival. Um, what do you mean? Uh, if you uh, are, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to keep it in my head. Like, okay. um, uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. I got it. Um, this is my fourth favorite. Uh, Armando Iannucci's the death of Stalin. Which uh, I really wanted to see uh, this. Yeah. It played it. It played at Toronto. Um, it'll be coming out sometime this year. Um, it didn't seem like a priority for a lot of people <laughs> because it had already played, around i guess and is already coming out i think yeah i mean with rare exception i try to just see movies that are premiering at sundance partially from a journalistic perspective that's like gonna serve the readers a little better i i do regret missing uh you were never really here but other than that uh i tend to stick to that line this is a spotlight movie uh yeah yeah yeah. i feel like i see one or two this year i think this was the only spotlight that i saw last year i know i saw colossal and france uh and france yeah and the year before i saw um, the Lobster and Green Room. So uh, I guess I'm cutting down on the spotlight movies, <laughs> but uh, I, I I couldn't avoid I, I couldn't not see the death of Stalin. I'm such an Armando Iannucci fan, going back to the thick of it, uh, and then in the loop. Um, and I've actually never watched Veep, so I guess I'm not as big a fan. But I mean, I just like his British stuff, which this technically is, even though it has uh, Steve Buscemi and Jeffrey Tambor uh, in major roles, and notably. Everyone speaks in their native accents. <laughs> uh, it has, it's a last temptation type of thing uh, that was uh, it's that's a, a little bit jarring for like a second. And then you just get used to it because you realize that he's playing this as a sort of a very Armando Iannucci type of in the moment now ish um, farce, but very foul mouthed and incredibly dark. This is one of, in a very dark comedy because uh, the premise is so um Stalin dies in the, at the end of the prologue, I guess. Um, and then the rest of the movie is about uh, Malenkov, played by Jeffrey Tambor, who was the deputy general secretary and therefore takes his place. Meanwhile, uh, Khrushchev, um, uh, played by Steve Buscemi, and um, Beria something, played by Simon Russell Beale, who apparently is a big deal in England. I didn't, was not familiar with his work, but he's terrific. Uh, they are sort of, they're the two people both sort of scheming to undermine Malenkov and eventually take over as, which as we know, Nikita Khrushchev uh, takes over three years later. Um, uh, and so it's, 
it's 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 literally a farce, like a, a, a sort of um, strategizing farce. Everyone's running around uh, trying to get different factions on their side, um, trying to quiet other factions. Um, uh, except people are constantly being executed. There, so <laughs> many people get shot in the head in this movie. Um, a lot of times, it's. Uh, almost entirely it's very rarely on screen it's almost, it's sort of just off screen like you'll see someone point a gun and fire it but you don't actually see the, the headshot which is a good choice because it would have been exhausting i think if people had actually had their probably brains. just too expensive is more the uh, yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's like a brawl in cell block 99 <laughs> head count yeah yeah um but it's uh it's it's so funny um uh and includes like you know i mentioned um Jeffrey Tambor, I, you know, I obviously uh, his star has uh, fallen uh, in recent, but it, he's always been funny. And Michael Palin is in it; he's he's very funny. But there's a lot of actors you don't normally think of as funny actors. Um, I'm not sure. Do you guys think of Steve Buscemi as a funny actor? Yeah, yeah, because okay. he I is funny. So. But yeah. I don't know. That's I don't know if that's how he's thought of. I feel like he's a character actor. I mean, maybe less so these of, days, but yeah. Because of the, I know his work from the '90s, like sure, like Fargo and Miller's Lebowski Boston. and uh, Barton Fink. Yeah. So yeah, Cohen stuff, Cohen all stuff. Cohen stuff. He's yeah, funny. right. Um, and then yeah, the uh, oh the Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler. Too. I was just about to say that. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's really funny here. He's sort of playing. I'm quoting my own review here, but he's playing Joe Pesci from Goodfellas if he was really smart. That's basically the, how, he, how he's playing Nikita Khrushchev. But also, uh, Jason Isaacs, who I don't think is generally thought of as a funny actor, is fucking hilarious here. I as, can see that, though. As a sort of, he's, he's not one of the main conspirators, but he gets, becomes a part of the conspiracy. He's the head of the army, um, the, you know, the, head, the general. I don't know. I can't remember what everyone's title is, uh, but he's the number one general, I guess. <laughs> Um, and David does army stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mom, I get promoted to number yeah. one general. Yeah. Um, and he's sort of like this uh, swaggering, cocky, jock type asshole guy, but it's really funny. Uh, I, I can't wait for this movie to come out. Um, uh, In the Loop is still, I think, one of the best comedies of the 21st century so far. Oh, yeah. Um, and this one, I think, deserves to be talked about in that in that company. Okay. I've talked myself hoarse almost. So let's move on to The Devil We Know. That one's me, unless anybody else has nope, seen this. Not I. Um, I'll just uh, set this one up. This is, uh, uh, I forget the director's name. Um, she's like one of these socially uh, uh, conscious documentarians uh, who does these things that gets you to quit whatever thing you're uh, doing. Yeah. yeah. And this one is about Teflon, uh, th- this. Uh, chemical C8 that's used to create Teflon and how this chemical was dumped by DuPont and 3M into the rivers and streams and everywhere else in West Virginia causing birth defects, cancer, you name it. Um, Eventually culminating in 99% of people on the planet having this chemical in their bloodstream. Uh, my wife and I were so disgusted by this. We sat there shaking like the whole time. I, I felt sick to my stomach. And I'll say, I've gone home and thrown out like half of my stuff in my kitchen and ordered new kitchen uh, appliances because of this. A, a very effective documentary. Like, uh, it's going to be a big deal, I think. Okay. Um, and. Uh, the the testimonies in it are are heartbreaking. There's a there's a, a man who was born with 
um, one nostril and his eye, like I'd say, I guess a few inches lower than where it should be. Um, And this is mirrored by wildlife cows and things that are just downstream from these factories. And uh, his face, you know, like as I don't know, I don't want to use the word grotesque, but the movie makes a point of it that people are really terrified of his face. Mm -hmm. But in a way it becomes a sort of mask. That's like a representation of this cause. Um, and it's really powerful in that regard. Um, this, this man was there after the screening and, um, just watching him see the effects that this documentary had on our audience and how he is the kind of stand in for this cause. It was a really powerful moment, and um, I mean, being there was powerful. I, I can't imagine this documentary won't cause a big stir when it's released. Um, All right, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I look forward to being terrified by it. Um, <laughs> I'd rather, if it were only, I wish I prefer the supersize me thing, which is like, okay, well, I can still eat McDonald's. I just won't eat it for a month. I'll be yeah, fine. but uh, it doesn't sound like this is going to let me off that easy. No, um, not quite. Uh, now, I know at least two of us saw the new Gus Van Sant movie, Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Did you see it? I well? did not see this. Okay, so Scott and I both saw it. Uh, and this will be, uh, in, in in terms of the critic conversation, yeah. this will be a little skewed because we're one of the f- two of the few people who liked the movie. I know. I'm, I guess I'm not too surprised. It's a weird movie. Um, yeah, but it's also like... Is it? It seems so straightforward. It's both, I think. In a certain way, it yeah. is like you're... It's the. It's the... It, it hits a lot of the sort of conventional biopic type notes, I guess, but it jumbles them all up, I think, in a way. Yeah, it's much more because, OK, so it's about the this cartoonist from Portland, uh, a kind of notorious figure in the Portland art community uh, who had a horrible drinking problem for years and years and years and got into a uh, car accident that left him paralyzed from what the waist down and like partially kind of, yeah, he's a quadriplegic. Yeah. When he, so at first he is, he has no movement below the, below the neck, but he eventually is able to use his arms and uh, arms a little bit. Yeah. But this is part of what's refreshing is that his, Recovery, like his disability, is not the main focus of the film. It's much more concerned with his alcoholism, mm-hmm. uh, and thus it's much more concerned with kind of his inner demons and uh, the daily struggle to remain sober and kind of cogent over oneself. Uh, much more than uh, his physical limitations, he's more concerned with uh, his emotional limitations. Um, Can I ask a stupid question? Sure. Okay, you're a quadriplegic. How do you remain an alcoholic unless someone else can provide you? Well, he, like David said, he does get some movement in his hands back. Got it. Okay, I was just curious. Initial uh, struggle for him to continue to drink is a. Uh, part of the subject of the film and uh, in some ways I think lightly comedic uh, darkly yeah. comedic to see him continually struggle to open bottles for no good at all there's a lot of and I think I'm not sure that you agree with me on this Scott, but there's a lot of comedic stuff that is not him being funny and it, there's a part of me that feels like the movie or maybe Gus Van Sant isn't crazy about John Callahan I disagree. I think because I, I think and I, I know Van Sant's been trying to make the movie for a while, and I think he really. I mean, he being from Portland as well has a right. lot of fondness for. But it wasn't. It was Robin Williams who wanted to. This is how right. Uh, yeah. The movie in the credits is dedicated to Robin Williams. I didn't and, catch that. Uh, and it's because uh, after Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams, I guess, got the rights to 
the John Callahan's uh, mm. memoir, which is called Don't Worry, He Will Get Her Far on Foot. And they were d- developing it forever, and then it never happened, and then Robin Williams died. And then for some reason, uh, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, I guess, <laughs> is the new Robin Williams. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, uh, is and, that right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I do feel like the movie doesn't. Uh, it, unlike, I mean, I said there's some like biopicy type stuff, but unlike most biopics, it doesn't tell you how to feel about John Callahan because I don't think his cartoons are particularly funny. Some, a few of them are good. There's a few that are pretty solid, <laughs> um, but they got big laughs in the theater. Yeah, uh, and I was like, I'm not sure. Like, I don't. <laughs> like I don't think that's that, that funny. I mean, you have to remember these mainly working in the nineties. It's a very nineties kind of humor. Yeah. Um yeah. and frankly, there's enough old people in the Sundance audience <laughs> who have a very nineties sense of humor. Right. So like yeah. and Gus Van Sant's a very nineties type of guy. He's on that same wavelength. Uh but I definitely I, I mean think, more of the genuine laughs for me came from Jonah Hill just just going for it. I yeah, like. I, I kind of had some prop to Jonah Hill's performance. I found it very, uh, I don't know, kind of displaying more than performing. Um, and some of that's embedded in the character, but there are some flourishes that he was just like a little too proud of his wig or a little too proud of his cigarette holder that he had as props. But I also think a guy like, and so I his name, I know, is sort of like lives his name. Wow. I can't remember it either. But he lives his life as sort of a performance. I know. I feel like there's an element there, but I I don't feel like it was totally earned. Um, I I loved it. I thought thought it was a great great performance. I I mean, he's not as good as Jack Black, who is uh, amazing in his essential one scene. Yeah. Two (laughs) Two scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Two very different scenes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Jack Black is amazing. But I do think, like, I hate to be this kind of, I don't hate, but we don't (laughs) normally do this kind of prognosticating here. But I feel like Jonah Hill is maybe the most likely nominee out of this I don't think anybody's likely. It's coming out in April. Oh, yeah, that's true. And nobody likes it. You and I are the only ones, David. (laughs) (laughs) There are some other people. I I heard a lot about it at the fest. Yeah, I I know Miriam Belt is fond of it. I I think the film comment guys on their podcast were pretty fond of it. but by and large, yeah, it was not a particularly beloved film. Yeah, our friend uh, Jordan from the film, film stage called it lethargically uncinematic, which I think wow. is uh, but the lethargic, wildly unfair. The lethargicness is what I like about it. It's like Gus Van Sant took the stuff that he learned making like Jerry and Last Days and stuff and kind of applied it to this kind of uh, more regular template. Um, uh-huh. But structurally, I think it's really... Because uh, it, it's broken up by these two kind of framing devices one of which is him giving a speech while is accepting an award and the other is him just crashing his wheelchair on the sidewalk yeah. and so that kind of sets up in both the beginning and the end these two pillars that he's going to be torn between his whole life yeah. uh, and I think framing it in that way is very smart uh, yeah I, you know I that, that makes more sense to you than it did to me I just thought it was like you know, linearly, non-linearly all jumbled up, but I didn't mind it. Right. Uh, but I didn't necessarily know in terms of, I didn't necessarily get why it would return to the framing devices when it did at any given point. No, but I, I think the fact that it came at the beginning and the end, uh, I, a lot of the re- framing device it returned to was the speech. And that I think that's mainly to paper over like narrative stuff and mm-hmm. kind of right. create thematic bridges from one scene to the next. Now we haven't talked about my pet theory about the movie, <laughs> which isn't even bare. Nobody's seen the movie. I don't think it's worth mentioning. Okay. Well, I'll wait till it comes out. Yeah. And we'll talk about yeah. the fact that Rumi Mara's character does put a exist. serious <laughs> pin in that. <laughs> I just said what my theory was, but you'll have to find it under, uh, under Dan's, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. No, that was good. It was perfect. Yeah. Okay. That great. Well timed. Um, yeah. Uh, all right. So let's move on to, uh, the movie, the festival I most sought to avoid. <laughs> 
An Evening with Beverly Loughlin. Yeah, this is uh, the new film by the guy who made The Greasy Strangler, which I didn't see, but which is... I saw it at South by Southwest. Incredibly divisive. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't say one way or the other. I, I knew it was kind of an odd sense of humor, so I knew somewhat I was in, in for uh, with this. And there are some scenes that are incredibly annoying, uh, but the film is anchored by a lead performance by Aubrey Plaza and Jemaine Clement, and they are extraordinarily good together. Um, I really like uh, what Plaza's been doing in the post-Parks and Rec years after she did the to-do list and accepted that she couldn't be just a regular leading female role. She had to play these demented characters, uh, and this is a continuation of these characters that are both uh, extremely kind of cruel and self-centered and... uh, unthinking and also weirdly horny about seemingly everything. Uh, there's a scene in which uh, she's kind of chasing after an old boyfriend played by Craig Robson and he's doing terrible laps in the pool while she's in the uh, hot tub, basically getting off watching him swim. <laughs> that is very amusing. Uh, there's a lot of really simple humor like that. That makes me laugh. Uh, Craig Robinson using an elliptical machine, but only rocking one way <laughs> is very funny to me. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there's enough to get me by on this uh, to get past the more annoying scenes where it's just that kind of anti-humor of people just shouting regular lines that's supposed to paper over the thin writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's the stuff about, like, I always feel defensive when I say I didn't like Greasy Strangler because I feel like people are going to think, oh, was it too weird for you? And it's right. the opposite. It was <laughs> it was boring. Uh, that is kind of the other big problem with uh, and even Beverly Hills left and is it eventually takes on more traditional romantic comedy shape, uh, which doesn't really build to or earn in any way. Uh, all right, let's move on. Well, this one, we can talk about this one very briefly because it's already come out theatrically, <laughs> at least in Los Angeles and New York, but it's Samuel Mayo's Mouse's uh, Foxtrot. Oh, yeah. I saw this at the festival for the first time. Yeah. I somehow missed it opening in L.A. It's, it seemed like the briefest window. I think it was just a qualifying It played thing, right? a qualifying run in December. I think it's coming out again in like February. Okay, yeah. well, have you guys seen it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I found it incredibly powerful. And, I really liked it. Uh, one of my favorite movies of, of the year, I guess, despite, the past I, year. I despise the ending, but the not enough for it ending. to uh, undo the movie for me. Oh, really? But I, I feel like... Uh, well, I'm gonna say, I think Scott and I probably think had this conversation off mic uh, back when we had both seen it, uh, but uh, I feel like it... For most of the movie, it stays on one side of being too pleased with itself and too clever. Yeah. And I think the way that it ends crosses that line in a way that kind of made me... Roll and it. I think that ending clarifies just how pleased with itself it was the entire time and left a very ill taste in my mouth. Wow, well, we'll have to talk about this when we're not yeah, we on my... Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to ruin it because I, I think it's such a wonderful film. It just felt like cheap irony, the, the end. I could see that. Uh, it didn't bother me so much because I just loved everything else about it and, yeah. and was willing to go with it. And that actor um, who plays the, the father, uh, yeah. Lior Ashkenazi, who was in um, uh, Footnote, um, who looks a lot like Steve Carell. Can uh, I say yeah. that? He's a more handsome Steve Carell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he was also in uh, uh, a pretty good movie from last year that almost no one saw called Norman with uh, Richard Gere. Uh, I, I, I remember, remember seeing the trailer for yeah, it. Yeah, I saw the trailer yeah. too. Um, Something with him in Central Park. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing I remember too. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, Norman is the movie uh, in which... Uh, a lot of non-Jewish character actors play Jewish characters. <laughs> oh, joy. Um, <laughs> um, including Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi and um, Dan Stevens. <laughs> uh, 
uh, weirdly. But no, I, I liked Norman. It's a fun movie, and Leo Eskenazi is very good in it. But the uh, middle of yeah. the triptych of Foxtrot to me is like one, uh, some like maybe my favorite half hour of movies I've seen in a long time. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and I like the way that he sort of. Um, uh, again, this could be the cleverness that uh, turned Scott off, but he sort of uh, repeats images in different ways. There's like, yeah, there's a rolling can. That's the, my favorite thing. That that is very funny, but then later there's a rolling can or bottle that is yeah very tragic, and I, I think that's sort of uh, yeah. Um, I tend to like you know. I tend to respond well to repetition and motifs and stuff in movies and in music. And in general, I like repetition. Um, uh, and, and so that a lot of that stuff really worked for me. And I, I appreciated it's kind of co- commentary on the, the like eternal war state and, 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 uh, you know, these characters find themselves in a, a, a timely message and, and well delivered, whether through like subtle visual metaphor or, or, or not so subtle. Or not so subtle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to The Happy Prince. Yes, here is a sort of biopic of Oscar Wilde focusing on his later years uh, immediately preceding and right up into his, uh, according to the film, very unpleasant death. Uh, it is written, directed, produced, and starring <laughs> Rupert Everett. And Does it include the uh, either the wallpaper goes or I do line, which is... Yes. Yeah, it always reported to be his final words or whatever. Uh, I guess it could have been. There's a lot of later words he kind of mumbles, but oh, it's okay. also told slightly non-chronologically, so it's hard for me to say, and this was the last movie I saw of the day at around 9.30, so maybe, I might be a little fuzzy on the order of events. But, it's your um, Beirut. Yeah, I wasn't exactly sleepy, <laughs> but there's kind of you know the mind drifts, and it's not the most involving movie either. Um as some critic I saw online said, if you know, if you want all the wit of an Oscar Wilde movie, this is definitely not that movie, um, which is fine by me. I mean, you know, people's lives don't always reflect their art and vice versa, um, especially after uh, you've been jailed for two years for being gay in Oscar Wilde's case and are on your deathbed as he spends a good portion of this film. Um, but it's kind of shot with this weird kind of guy Madden style, this kind of wandering, lurching camera and getting these deep shadows uh, which, you know, if you've read, uh, what can I think of the picture of Dorian Gray, you know, it presents a different side of Oscar Wilde than you see in his plays. And I don't think that side should be ignored. I just don't know if this film quite comes together in the way it wants to. Um, there's just kind of these tonal shifts that never work. Like right when Oscar Wilde's about to die and he's at his most tragic, they have this weirdly comedic scene with Tom Wilkinson as a priest. That's going to give him his last rites, uh, that totally throws off the tone of the film. Um, yeah, it, it's an interesting effort, but it, it has kind of the familiar signs of uh, a passion project left a little unchecked. Um, all right, let's move on to I Think We're Alone Now, which is a new film from Reed Morano, who is uh, um, an accomplished uh, DP um, and made a film a few years ago called Meadowland or Meadowlands. That oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, but has, heard, uh, has gotten a lot of uh, attention recently for helming uh, to use variety, variety <laughs> speak, uh, a bunch of episodes of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and so this movie, I think we're alone now, she both uh, directed and shot. Um, and it's, uh, uh, once again, it's a post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, everyone has died mysteriously, uh, except in this small town, the small New England town of uh, what was once 1,600 people. There's now one person, played by Peter Dinklage, um, who... Um, 
lives in the library now and spends his days going up and down the streets, cleaning people's homes, moving their bodies, taking them out to the graveyard, giving them burials, sort of keeping the town not running, but uh, he just basically says that he, or later we'll say that he's trying to avoid entropy, so he's sticking to things. Uh, most notably, unlike most characters in these sort of post-apocalyptic movies, he is 100% happy to be alone. Um, he doesn't, He's that's all he's ever wanted is to be alone, and sort of, a, there are a lot of allusions to other things in here, but uh, that's a, the fact that he lives in a library and is happy to be alone is very much the, um, uh, what's the, um, the Twilight Zone episode? Um, the guy with the books. Yeah, Everyone knows Burgess it. Meredith. <laughs> yeah. But I can't remember the name. <laughs> I know. It's called like All the Time in the World. Something or, like that, yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of that TV show, uh, what was, with, um, SNL, um, Will Forte. Uh, yeah, but, he's, but he's very much not happy to be alone. He tries to, that's well, you're right until, until yeah. the end of the first episode. <laughs> uh, he yeah. Realizes his, um, but also that's, I, I thought of last man on earth because in last man on earth for what I've now understood to be network note reasons in the first season, they didn't encounter a lot of dead bodies. Um, this movie is very concerned with the dead bodies. Got it. There are okay. dead bodies in every home and he's said himself to, to to clean up um but then one day out of the blue um l fanning shows up drunkenly driving through the town and crashing her car and um they uh, and she he tries to push her away and they sort of form a um uh, cautious friendship uh and then i don't really want to say where it goes from there because it does end up having a bit of a sci-fi twist but in a way the the I mean the, the basic the, the the term I would use to sum up this movie is half baked. Um, it, uh. it, it doesn't it, it brings up this twist and then doesn't really do anything uh, with it, and I'm not really sure what is supposed to be the 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 reason for what, what their relationship is supposed to to what's supposed to come of it. Uh, I think basically it's a you know, Reed Murano, like I said, very accomplished cinematographer. It's a beautiful movie. Um, it's, you know, what, you know, one of my, uh, recent sort of pet crusades on the show is talking about movies that are shot in scope and they don't need to be. This is a movie that makes use of the scope, uh, frame and also is, um, probably the first like indie movie I've seen that was mixed in Dolby Atmos, hmm. uh, and seeing it in the Eccles, which cracks me up that there is, <laughs> right. there is a high school auditorium in Park City, Utah that is <laughs> outfitted with for <laughs> Dolby Atmos. Uh, but it was that, that was in so from a technical standpoint it was I, i'm certainly I, you know it's only 90 minutes long it looked great it sounded cool i don't regret having gone to see it but as a story i don't think it's going to have uh a lot of long-lasting resonance for anyone because it doesn't seem to nothing really much comes of it uh but it's you know sort of dryly funny i'm a big l fanning fan hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, i am but it's just hard to say yeah uh but uh uh, yeah, uh, I think we're alone now. If you see it, I guess see it in the theater. Uh, in a in, in Atmos. Atmos. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it'll play in the AMC Dolby Theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on um, to... Oh, this is still me. Am, yeah. I, am I the only one... Uh, uh, am I hopefully, mercifully, the only one <laughs> who is subjected to Juliet Naked? I love the book Juliet Naked. Oh, okay. I'm not, I've never read any Nick Hornby. I was really looking forward to this movie, but then I heard what you're seemingly about to say. 
Yeah, it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, Rose Byrne uh, plays a woman. No one in the movie is named Juliet, um, but Rose Byrne plays a woman who uh, has lived all her life in this uh, in seaside English town, um, and she's lived with her boyfriend of 15 years played by Chris O'Dowd, who's a total fucking drip um, and is obsessed with an American singer songwriter from the nineties named Tucker Crow played by Ethan Hawke later. Um, And uh, through uh, a series of circumstances, they end up breaking up at the same time that Rose Byrne ends up becoming friends with the actual Tucker Crow, who's supposed to be a recluse, but is weirdly like willing to, emailed this one on the internet out of the blue <laughs> and spends a lot of time in public in multiple countries. Inter- I, interesting. In the, in the book, she breaks into his home. Oh my God, that is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine what the story is in the book that allows that to happen. Because <laughs> she never even goes to America in the book. Oh, or yes. the movie. Yes, they're on tour in America going, she gets dragged by her husband to go and wow. see... All of this Tucker Crow sites of where he recorded, and she hates being on this tour, um, and thinks she can end it by like breaking into his home and and getting her husband some kind of memorabilia. So he'll just shut up about Tucker Crow. Oh no! Here, what happens here is he runs a Tucker Crow fan site, which looks like it was designed in 1997. Um, I don't know how you could like you're making a movie and you don't have a graphic designer who can make a website that looks like. <laughs> you know this uh century anyway um and so she's in a fight with him and so she ends up creating an account and making leaving a comment that like trashes tucker crow and tucker crow <laughs> is like hey this lady's right i hate myself i was an awful musician and reaches out to her and so they so they become pen pals but then it doesn't even like there, there's so much just soft you know under uh, underhand throw rom-com type of bullshit like the fact that she's developing this connection with tucker crow should mean oh there's like going to be some romantic stress here but no it's like right on cue chris o'dowd ends up being a dick and cheating on her <laughs> like it just the movie just makes it too easy yeah for her and uh um uh, I, I i hate to keep paraphrasing my own reviews but sometimes i in this case, in these cases, I've already like thought about how I think about the movie, so I end up having the same thoughts. So basically, it becomes it's like a coming of middle age movie about someone who should have grown up already. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I saw I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying, even people who didn't like the movie, saying Rose Byrne is great in it. I don't even know if that's true. I mean, she's a charming screen presence as always, but there's nothing. The character is lame and annoying. Uh, all three of them are. Uh, yeah, uh, avoid it. Uh, I will say the, uh, uh, I hate to say, you know what? Okay. I'm going to, is this a soundtrack comment? Uh, no, no. Uh, this is about, the, I, I, I love the people who work and volunteer at Sundance. Yeah. Like having gone to other festivals or especially having gone to San Diego comic-con where the volunteers, you ask five different volunteers, the same question, you will get five different answers. It's infuriating. People at Sundance know their shit. Yeah, it's they're, impressive. They're really great. Yeah. Um, so that said, the woman who introduced the movie more than once called the director by the wrong name. <laughs> um, but uh, not the only, not the only time that happened uh, at Sundance this year. On on Sundance experiences, did you have any particularly odd interruptions to any movies that you were in? Because I, I'm two for no. two now. My first year was a drunken person rolling around in the aisles <laughs> like for like half an hour during Cemetery of Splendor, which is probably the worst <laughs> movie to do that in. Yeah. And and this year it was a woman 
uh, uh, audibly saying what she was seeing on screen <laughs> out loud during Foxtrot. So a camel showed up and she goes, oh, a donkey. And, <laughs> and then, then the camel came back and she said, oh, a camel. And I wanted to applaud her for getting it <laughs> right the second time, but very uh, frustrating. I forgot about the camel part in Foxtrot. That camel's pretty funny. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's not a donkey. Uh, not a donkey. Um, no, this year I didn't have any interruptions, but last year uh, at Berlin Syndrome, the DCP server crashed uh, five minutes before the end of the movie. Oh. And uh, the the stars, uh, Teresa Palmer and the German guy from Sense8, whose name I forget, came. Uh, and instead of a Q&A, they reenacted the end of the movie. Wow, what but, an experience. Yeah, but then they did the Q&A, and then they got the server watch like running again. So I'm glad I stayed. Uh, because then we watched the last five minutes of the movie. The one time you'll stay for a Q and A. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will. I, I found at Sundance for premieres. If I don't have anywhere to be and I liked the movie, I will sometimes stay. Uh, and then sometimes I stay and I'm like, why did I stay? I was, yeah, it's usually happens. pretty light. Uh, yeah. What inspired you to make this movie? Yeah. <laughs> or uh, although. I, Depend- at the Eccles, I will often end up staying just because it's impossible to get out of the Eccles, and I don't want to have to. I find if you leave right away, people are pretty forgiving. Uh, yeah, I feel like you have to crawl over so many people. It depends the on where you sit. The Eccles has ro- the rows are a fucking football field long, and there's no like divide. There's no right. center aisle or anything. It's just a row that goes on forever. So if you end up in the middle, it's like. Uh, yeah, this is got to pack those kids in <laughs> at the one Q&A I did stay for, which was for Colette. Uh, I did get one of the best questions, which is this guy saying, how are the costumes so fabulous? <laughs> which is totally accurate and what everybody yeah. wanted to know. So I appreciate the question. That's great. <laughs> uh, OK, uh, our only short film on the list, Dan, is Laser Sism. Do you have anything to say about Laser Sism? Um, Lakeith Stanfield is in it. So oh, I just wanted to add a tally for everything. him because he's in every single movie. <laughs> him and well, Ann Dowd. Uh, well, I think the record holder this year was Andrea Riseborough. Oh, yeah, that too. I saw in two things. I saw her in The Death of Stalin and Mandy, which we'll talk about. Right. She was also in Burden and Nancy. I think Ann Dowd was in five movies. Oh, okay. Ann Dowd beats her. Uh, and yet I didn't see any of the Ann Dowd. I saw zero Dowd. Didn't, yeah. Now I can only remember her at the Emmy just saying Hulu. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's every time I see her yeah. now, that's what I think about. Hulu. Uh, yeah. So I saw two Andrea Riseboroughs and two Lakeith Stanfields. I actually saw Lakeith Stanfield. I guess I actually saw her. Yeah, I saw them in both. Does, does well. real life count as an additional movie? Is that <laughs> yeah, how this it, works? It still even out because I still saw them. He both. exists, period. Uh, the the yeah. movie. Um, okay, so Laser Sism. Oh, Lizzie. Uh, yeah, this is the story of Lizzie Borden and how she probably, but unproven at the time, uh, killed her father and stepmother uh, in an effort to gain her freedom. Which apparently worked. Um, and that's not a spoiler to say, even though that is that is, how that works, you know, All it's right. worth a shot. All right. Uh, that event is situated towards the end of the film, but is so heavily uh, foreshadowed that you, even if you didn't know the story, you'd be a fool to miss it. Uh, but it's a it's a solid film. You'd be a fool to miss that, too. Uh, it stars Chloe Sevigny as the uh, titular Lizzie and uh, Kristen Stewart as the family's new maid uh, who is uh, given the terrible treatment so many maids uh, of the time. I actually don't know when the movie takes place. I'm going to be honest. It's sometime in old timey times. 1892. 1892. According to the thing. I'm Bad time for women. Uh, and so she is... Uh, further mistreated than even uh, Lizzie is. And it, the film really, in, in a way that most period pieces don't, really gets to just how rough women had at the time. I mean, every film of the period kind of gives lip service to the notion 
of women's freedom and then has some character just body enough to tell off a man and he gets terribly embarrassed about the whole situation. Uh, but this, you really feel like they're almost in prison. Um, and so the mounting tension becomes unbearable to the point that you can see why murder would be the only recourse. Uh, like I said, there's some kind of playing with the chronology that I don't think Scott is... Scott and I endorses murder on Battleship Pretension. <laughs> well, I can understand, I understand it. Uh, but I, I think the film has a, a nuanced enough take. Apparently, Chloe Sevigny wanted to tell the story for years and wanted the murder to be very rousing. It is not. It is very horrifying and very nerve-wracking. Uh, and as the film points out both dramatically and in its post-text, uh, you know, no one really ended up totally happy as a result, even if they had a bit of freedom. Uh, so it, it's very uh, conscious of the effects of the violence. Um, where was I going before David interrupted me, though? Uh, <laughs> I interrupted you. <laughs> You're like Reynolds Woodcock. Yes. The tea is leaving, but yes, the interruption the is staying right staying. here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, it's, uh, oh, yes, there's some playing with the chronology that I don't think is totally necessary, um, but the, the the murder scene is incredibly riveting, and uh, Sevigny and Stewart give really excellent performances. Uh, this just got distribution either yesterday or today, and so I hope... Saban Films. Yeah, which is some kind of place. I don't know. I, but I, is it the same Saban as Power Rangers Saban? Power Rangers, <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming. Sure. Uh, also, the Saban Free Clinic. They do a lot of uh, um, philanthropic uh, work. Oh, I thought you were going to say like fighting of Megazords. <laughs> no, I'm saying this Saban family uh, oh. supports a lot of uh, healthcare for poor people uh, in Los Angeles. So I hope it's the same people. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Go see Lizzie. Give healthcare to poor people and destroy Goldar. <laughs> <laughs> you know one more thing about the Power Rangers than I do. Um, all right, the only uh, foreign language film that I saw at this year's festival um, was a Brazilian film called Loveling. Uh, L-O-V-E-L-I-N-G. Loveling. Um, although, weirdly, my um, uh, Lyft driver on the way back to the airport was Brazilian and... Uh, teaches uh, Brazilian to business people at like Utah Valley College or whatever. And the other Brazilian film, Rust, that played, he was the translator. He was like, what should I see? I have a pass to see some stuff because I worked on one of the movies. Wow. Um, Yeah, but uh, unfortunately I saw the wrong (laughs) Brazilian film. No, actually this one, uh, Loveling is very good. Um, It's basically a portrait of motherhood. Uh, And, uh, and, and a pretty honest portrait of uh, lower middle class life. Um, the the star, her name is Karina Tellis. Uh, I can't remember the. I think Irene is the character's name. Um, I can't. It's not important. Um, she's a, a mother of four. Um, the she and the dad both work while she's also finishing getting her. I guess Brazilian equivalent of like a GED. She's getting her high school diploma. Um, uh, and her oldest son. Uh, is a star handball player and has been given a scholarship to go to Germany to play handball professionally, which is a real thing. I looked it up. I believe it. <laughs> Just a big world out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the movie, the movie is, I guess, pretty much plotless, but it does have these sort of two ticking clocks, which is that she's got her graduation ceremony coming up. And uh, also a couple of days after that, her son is going off to Germany for God knows how long. Uh, and so she's 
facing these two major changes in her life. Her diploma is going to, because right now she works sort of uh, selling uh, discount linens out of her van. Uh, but the diploma is going to be able to get her uh, a real job. Um, <clears throat> but also her son leaving is the end of the chapter of, even though she still has three younger sons, it's still this chapter of how she has defined herself. She hasn't been, uh, even a high school graduate, she's been a mother for at this point, 18, 19 years or whatever. Uh, and so it's just sort of, uh, a movie about the rewards and indignities of motherhood. It's sort of, um, you know, encapsulates the idea that mothers won't be appreciated for what they do, but it's not like, you know, uh, it's not a platitude. It's not, uh, uh, trite about it. Um, it actually, I think, is very interested in this this woman's uh, inner life, and it's a terrific lead performance by Karina Tellis. Um, and uh, uh, it, it also has um, a bunch of sort of uh, I don't know what you'd call them little scenes that are either memories, maybe or flashbacks, or maybe they're just dreams or whatever. But it's just like in the middle of in between scenes, it'll just be her and one of her kids, like her and the older kid in an inner tube or her and her younger sons like playing in a blanket fort. And it's, um, there are these really nice sequences that have nothing to do with the movie, uh, at all, but, um, are really lovely and bittersweet because you know that these kids are getting older and one of them is moving away. Uh, so yeah, loveling, um, quite enjoyed it. Right on. The next one is, I'm going to tell you right now, my favorite movie of the festival. Second favorite last, for me. Last thing I saw, um, I saw it as well. Madeline's Madeline. Yes, we all yeah. saw it? Yes. We will, have you gotten to your favorite yet? Colette. Colette is your favorite. Okay. Um, see, this happened last year. My favorite was your second favorite, Call Me By Your Name, I Weird. think, because you liked a ghost story. Why do I remember this? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, you guys talk about Madeline's Madeline, because I need some water. Um, yeah, this is the third film from Josephine Decker. It's at least the third film I've heard of. Uh, Butter on the Latch. And, and That Was Smile and Lovely. That Was Smile and Lovely. came out, like, back-to-back, basically. Um... And it's a really exceptional film um, about a young girl who has had a past in some sort of mental institution um, and is now kind of getting back to regular life. Uh, her mother's played by Miranda Dali. Her mother is still very concerned with her, uh, her well-being and uh, her uh, ability to handle getting back into regular life, which includes, in this case, uh, participation in an experimental theater piece. Um, Directed by uh, an actress of some note whose name I don't I already forget. Because it's, it's Molly Parker. Molly Parker who played with, Alma Garrett right. on later Alma Ellsworth on Deadwood. Um, I also I always get her confused though with Polly Walker, okay. who was on Rome at the same time. Uh, so like HBO had a Molly Parker and a Polly Walker at the same time. I often get them confused, but this one's Molly Parker. Okay. She's also on uh, House of Cards. Oh, oh, okay. Um, and so it's kind of uh, the young woman who I meant to write down the actress's name because she's so extremely good. Um, uh, and write, write down, isn't it like it starts with a K, doesn't it? Oh, no. sort of an H. I was an H, H, an H, an H. Helena. I wanted to say it was like Helena Howard. Yeah, I think you might. Yeah, that sounds like H. too much like a superhero. Yeah, I think it's, it is it's a, a double age. Okay. Yeah. Um, like anyway. H bagels. Uh, she maybe that's who she's behind. It. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of slowly becomes the rising star of the theater piece, and as it gets continually worked around uh, her talent, which uh, both the actress playing her and the character that she's playing have an enormous range, um, mm-hmm. and able to do so many surprising things on camera, often in a single shot. So there's no kind of like editing trickery involved. It's just purely 
what she's able to do. And it's, it's really striking, but it also is something that the director, the Molly Parker character, um, starts to get a little possessive of and even vampiric over. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's, it's about so many things, but in that way, it's kind of about, uh, the, the co-option of youth and the way that, uh, I, I think we all to some degree, uh, look to younger performers as a, a way to reclaim some sense of, uh, energy or, uh, vibrancy or, yeah, it, it, I mean, and, and it's told in such a strange way that kind yeah. of hinges on this mental breakdown that the character's possibly having. Um, I mean, one viewing is probably not enough to do it justice. I can't wait to see it again. To yeah, really me too. How long did it. it take you guys to start like piecing together what you were seeing? Because for well, me, it, the movie starts with five minutes of her acting like a cat. Yeah, I even right. know what the hell is going on? <laughs> right. I loved. That's not a complaint. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, I was like, this could be the movie, just her acting like well, animals. Well, and this might this might be uh, a hot take, but I have a real hard time distinguishing between uh, mental illness and experimental theater. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 think I think that's, that's very purposeful. I yeah. Think that's, yeah, part of the point. Yeah, and so for much of the movie, I, I wasn't sure, wait, does this character actually have some mental illness? It's made clear by, you know... If, if you weren't realizing it by the final shot of the movie um, and and how the sound works there. But uh, I definitely was unsure throughout much of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think they clarified earlier in some dialogue. And maybe I missed that yeah. moment. But uh, but there is, I mean, it's intentionally disorienting, I think, especially early on. There's something very, like, in the head about the movie in the sense that I think most of the shots, especially in the first half, a person's face and head will be in focus, but most of yeah. what's around them is, is, is blurry and out of yeah. focus. Uh, um, I'll say, um, yes. So it is Helena Howard. Okay. Terrific, uh, debut here. Um, but all three of the lead performances are great. For yeah, sure. for sure. Molly Parker, despite me seeing some more genre type stuff, including a movie about Stalin, Molly Parker's <laughs> character might be the biggest villain or the best villain <laughs> in any movie that I saw at Sundance. And um, what a stroke of genius on Josephine Decker's part to cast Miranda July as the most down to earth character yeah. in the movie. <laughs> My favorite tweet of the festival was your tweet about that. Oh, uh, thank you for highlighting that I'm just repeating what I said on Twitter, but I have no uh, I'm on to you. I have no shame about that. Also, yeah. apparently, I, I didn't stick around for the Q&A, but apparently uh, Josephine Decker talked about how the title was a typo from uh, when she was texting somebody about the movie. I guess it was supposed to just be Madeline, Madeline, but she accidentally typed Madeline's Madeline. And she's oh. like, oh, that works better. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, yeah. So that was uh, that was definitely my my favorite. So I think we've gotten my one through four so far, right? <laughs> it was my number three. Okay. Wait, what did I say? It was uh, no, we haven't even gotten to my number two. Uh, so never mind. Uh, we've gotten one, three, and four. Okay. Okay. Moving on to Mandy, which is probably my number six <laughs> or seven. I really I want to see seven. this movie. My number seven, Mandy. I, this was one. Um, uh, one of two. I'm trying to know what the other one was now. Oh yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, two movies that I had not initially planned on seeing, but started getting enough buzz that I made room in my schedule. Um, this is the new film from uh, Panos Cosmatos, um, who made Beyond the Black Rainbow, which people who listened two weeks ago know that I wasn't a fan of. Right. Um, that was I, my other nap movie. <laughs> oh, what, Mandy? No, oh, Beyond, Beyond the Black, Black Rainbow. Rainbow. Well, Mandy was weird. You say, like, you're trying to stay awake movie. Mandy was, like, it right in the middle of, like, a five-movie day for me, and therefore, like, right in the middle of my coffee wearing off. <laughs> and so I was weirdly sleepy during Mandy, but I think that only enhanced the experience. Yeah. I mean, the first kind of half dreamy. is pretty languid and dreamy. Yeah. Uh, and, and psychedelic. 
Um, very psychedelic. Yeah. I loved it. Um, I, I, there are, I have, Scott, we talked about this off mic, because um, I have minor reservations about the movie that I can't get into because it would be a major spoiler to do so. Yeah, I can. Um, I, I feel like we had the same reservations, just I was a little more so about it. It, okay. it takes a turn kind of halfway through in both a narrative sense and an aesthetic sense. It becomes a different type of movie, um, at which point I felt it became a much more ordinary movie. And for as strange and unpredictable and invigorating as that first half was, I was just kind of disappointed by how standard the plotting became and how the standard plotting, yeah. this plotting and the storytelling for that matter. I, I didn't think the, but as far as the actual things depicted, there's some, there's still some crazy shit, I guess. Yes, you do but, get to see a six foot chainsaw and a chainsaw fight, yeah. uh, which is very exciting. Um, but nevertheless, for sold <laughs> for the, like, I mean, for the scene, it gets to towards the end of the first half, where like people's faces are melding into each other and he's play- the cult leader is playing a song that he wrote about himself yeah, yeah, <laughs> about how yeah. great he is. It, that scene is so incredible that for the movie to just become. And, and see, I think there's stuff in the second half, like there's some, I guess uh, the like old fogey and he wants to say Matt shot Matt paintings, but I guess they're like composite shots yeah. where it makes this sort of woods in the Valley look like the cover of a Dio record or something, yeah, that, you know, that's... and there's cool stuff. But I think, I guess, because I agree with what you're saying, just like you said, not to the same extent, but where I, where I sort of, oh, the the movie sort of let me down a little bit is that I think it had an opportunity at right. the end That's what I was gonna to get tie into. it all together. Okay, sorry, so I interrupted you, um, and, it, and it didn't take that opportunity. Not only to tie it all together, but I think to take what it had been doing and really take it to the next level, and it kind of just ended as you kind of expected to. It's, I don't know. I was a little let down as it went on. It's still a fine movie. It's just not as exciting as it initially presents itself to be. Uh, but I'll, I'll say the reason I liked it better than Beyond the Black Rainbow is that I think it um, uh, had a little more, uh, it had more emotion and sort of like a John Wick type of thing of having like just a, sure. a basic emotion, emotional motivation that Beyond the Black Rainbow was missing. And also, I think it's funnier than Beyond the Black Rainbow. Well, sure. Yeah, you were howling about uh, an initial joke that I won't spoil here because nobody should should have that joke spoiled for them. Yeah, the, yeah, the, it was yeah the hardest I laughed in the movie. Although we didn't talk about there was a big laugh for me in Madeline's Madeline too, where the um, the girl from Mr. Robot um, is wearing the pig mask oh, yeah. and she takes off the mask and she goes, "It's just me." <laughs> Um, pretty anyway. solid. Um, so yeah, Mandy, I would definitely, I definitely think it's, this movie's going to have a long life, I think as a, uh, yeah. a cult object type For of stuff. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with Scott that I wish it had, uh, continued, uh, being as out there as it was in its first half, but I still, I still enjoyed it. And I think we haven't talked about Nicolas Cage, uh, in, in, in the lead role. Um, but I think he's terrific. Yeah, I, I, then that's another thing where there's a single shot scene of him in the middle kind of processing what's happened at that point that is extraordinary. Uh-huh. And it's yeah. the most exciting work I've seen from Cage in a while. And I, I like a lot of the stuff Cage has been doing, uh, but it's an exceptionally performance. And I was, you know, that's the point of the movie where I was like, this movie can do anything. And then it stops doing that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that scene, even though uh, I'll quote my review again. It seems like it's tailor made for the supercut. This, you know, some sort of Nicolas Cage freaking out supercut. I, I Yes, but it, um, Cage but is gonna not, be Cage is gonna be Cage, you know. Yeah, that's, and that's not a, that's not a complaint yeah. at all. Uh, that did bring me like uh, I don't know if you read my review, but uh, my theory about because that the second half of the movie is a metaphor for him falling off the wagon. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> because they, like one of the first things we see him do in the opening, like wordless, like him being yeah. lumberjack montage is say no to a beer. Okay. His fellow lumberjack. Right. Gives him a beer, and then after what happens, and he uh, he has to fish a bottle of liquor out of a bathroom cabinet, which right. is a weird place to keep it. So it makes me think, okay, he's an alcoholic; he's hiding liquor, and so maybe uh, the whole second half is just him. Uh, I can see off that. The wagon. But uh, he should have fallen off. The movie itself should have fallen off the wagon a little bit more. You had me at lumberjack. <laughs> uh, all right. They also. Um, Angie Riseboro wears some real bitch in t-shirts. Yeah, her uh, t-shirts are great. Yeah, Motley Crue and Black Sabbath uh, t-shirts. Anyway, uh, let's move on to the movie The Miseducation of Cameron Post. I keep wanting to say Emily Post, but The Miseducation of Cameron Post. <laughs> uh, I, I was mixing this one up with the uh, the other long uh, conversation. or An Evening with Beverly Lovely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I kept mixing the two up. Uh, very different movies. This is uh, about a young woman played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who's still in high school. She's kind of doing the standard uh, Christian teen life stuff, uh, going to prom with the boys, uh going to Bible study, going about her life, but also uh, carrying on a romance with her best friend, uh, who is a, a woman. I, I had a trouble phrasing this in my review, because I, I hate, as a man, using the term her best girlfriend. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the friend has a somewhat gender-neutral name. Uh, but anyway, yes, it, it is a girl. Uh, and they are eventually caught uh, in a compromising position. Uh, and uh, Chloe Grace Morris is sent off I guess I could say Cameron Post. You know her name. It's in the title. Uh, is sent off to... Uh, what, what's the right term for these? Like a gay re- re-education camp? Uh, oh, yeah, rehabilitation? No. There's yeah. a term for it, but I can never remember yeah, it. Yeah, I can't remember what it is either. Uh, but those horrible I, places... I bet if you hadn't said anything, I would right, have been the yes, yeah. Those yeah. horrible places where they try to uh, make kids Gay straight. conversion. Conversion. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Conversion is the word, yeah. Um... Uh, so yeah, I was a bit apprehensive going in the movie because if you know this kind of Sundance movie aesthetic, uh, their treatment of Christianity in general is uh, a bit simplified. Um, but on the other hand, these are horrible places and they deserve to be ridiculed. But on the other hand, maybe simple ridicule isn't quite enough for them. Uh, so yeah, I was kind of torn between all of this as I was watching the movie and the movie never fully resolves how it feels towards them. You know, he kind of gets into the loneliness that drives a lot of the people to uh, put on this particular camp. Um, Mm. But it also takes some kind of cheap shots. That's egged on by its period setting. It's in the early nineties. So there's a lot of kind of early nineties stuff that is able to laugh at because of it, which I almost feel like is too cheap for it. It kind of lets the audience off the hook in terms of the real, uh, damage they're doing to these kids, which the film actively takes on as it goes on. Um, but Chloe Grace Mertz is really exceptional. I never have gotten too excited about her as an actress, but I think she plays a lot of interesting notes here. She's not a total kind of rebel. She's mostly just trying to get through the camp unscathed, um, just say the right things to get by so she can get back to her life as soon as possible, which is, I think, a very relatable teen emotion um, that you don't see on screen that often, especially because it's so hard to portray actively, but her performance is active involved in that the way she kind of looks around to figure out the right answer the way she catches herself accidentally having fun here and there when she feels like she's not supposed to because she generally hates being there mm-hmm. um yeah there's a lot of good stuff in the movie i don't think it's a total success but it, it's uh, i think a little bit better than i expected going in is the girl from american honey yes sasha lane is yeah. in she plays kind of the real rebel of the group as you might expect if you've seen american honey or seen a picture of sasha lane um <laughs> and she's really good as well good 
uh, that was uh, honestly I didn't know anything about the movie except that the still yeah. the girl from American <laughs> Honey and I was like I'm interested because yeah. uh, American Honey is so good yes I was actually rewatching part of that today it totally holds up good to know uh, after all this time has passed uh, yeah. <laughs> but we've seen hundreds of movies since then That's so true. There's, you know. we're hundreds of movies smarter than we were <laughs> when we saw it uh, all right. Uh, next up uh, for me, I think only me is Ronaldo Ronaldo Marcus Green's Monsters and Men. Didn't see it. <clears throat> this is um, like Foxtrot. Actually, it's a this is a triptych um, that sort of is generally revolves around one one single incident, which is the um, shooting and killing of an unarmed black man on a Brooklyn street corner by Brooklyn cops. Uh, but it approaches the story from three different people who were not directly involved with it. One of them, the closest is the first one, uh, played by Anthony Ramos, who is uh, a guy who captured it on his cell phone, who was there, who was present, captured on his cell phone. Um, the second, uh, the middle section is a black cop in the same precinct, but who was not there for the incident. And then the third is just another kid from the neighborhood who um, didn't even know the guy, but just is affected by this because it you know, is something that happened and the protests and stuff are happening in his neighborhood. Um, it, it's uh, <clears throat> in terms of, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's not a, a, a mind blowing aesthetic achievement. I think it does some smart things um, uh, from a, from a formalistic standpoint where it's mostly um, it, it's, it's mostly told in, uh, shot like handheld, but certain shots will be steady cam in a way of, in, 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 I think what I took to be an effort to, to relay that in this scene, the main character is in control is comfortable here. Uh, and it's used smartly because in the first two, the steady cam comes early on and then fades out as they become less comfortable in the third one. It's the opposite, um, which I thought was a cool, a cool choice. But mostly I think from an intellectual stand, intellectual standpoint, I really appreciated this movie because, <clears throat> and I feel bad as a, you know, uh, hat white male, um, that this didn't occur to me initially that this was important, but I, you know, I'm, you know, Sorry, excuse me. Uh, last Sundance, I went to the Women's March. I went, you know, I've marched since then. I've donated money. I've been vocal online about things that I disagree with politically. And it, this is a movie that made me think about the fact that, that that because of my position of privilege, that is kind of easy for me to do. It doesn't really cost me anything. I'm not really risking right. anything. Um, in fact, I'm more likely to be risking something by not doing yeah. it. Um, uh, and this is, I think, being about three men of color it's a movie that is about what it means to what activism means to someone who is actually stands to lose something by doing it. And at least one of these characters doesn't, doesn't do anything and the movie doesn't judge him uh, Mm -hmm. for that. So I think it's a really interesting, I think a really important, you know, 2018 uh, movie. Um, And uh, yeah, I hope it doesn't get sort of swallowed up anyway. uh, Never going back is next. That's when I saw. Yeah. Um, this is like uh, super bad, but with two uh, young lesbian uh, girls All who right. were kind of um, trying to leave their Texas, uh, remote Texas town to go on uh, a uh, beach trip to Galveston. Can I stop you real quick? Uh, Masha's Men was acquired by Neon. 
All right. Oh, there you go. Right. Neon so, is doing all the grabs. Yeah. So is it woke to see it? Is it not woke <laughs> to see it? I don't know. This is uh, Neon's very expensive virtue signaling. <laughs> uh, all right. So I'm sorry. Go actually never going back. No, no, no. Um, and it's a, it's a very simple kind of um, a comedy, a, a character-oriented comedy about these two uh, young women um, who were, I guess I mentioned they were in a relationship, they're in a relationship with each other, which is very believable. Um, both, uh, actresses whose names I'm forgetting right now, um, are wonderful, uh, new, I would say new stars. I, I expect to see them in a number of movies after this. They really carry the film. Um, you know, the, uh, it's, it's, it's them and, and all the, they're, they're, they've put this money towards this trip to travel on this beach vacation, uh, only for everything else in their life to go horribly wrong in the pursuit of that in the same way that any of these kind of like one night in blank movies, you know, mm-hmm. are. And I, I'd say like 75% of the jokes really work. And there's other ones that just seems a little too overpacked or it gets into some kind of, uh, side stories that are a little more skit like that I, I didn't appreciate as much, but it's all won over by this kind of, uh, wonderful, uh, you know, like on just forward momentum, uh, they come from this very poor neighborhood. So, um, money is scarce and their, uh, siblings that they live with without their parents are drug dealers and, and, and have associated troubles with that. Um, and so it's interesting because the film is not very depressing. It's very like positive and optimistic, despite the fact that they're living in squalor and in really bad scenario with no parents to supervise them. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that it doesn't really dive into that, but also kind of, I found it like I would have liked to have seen the kind of, uh, heavy stakes that, uh, you know, uh, that surround these girls, you know, this, this high chance of failure for them, especially as they're kind of like coming up against the law and all these other things. There's one really beautiful scene in the movie that I want to draw people's attention to in, in this diner where the girls are going, uh, to try to go to their job, which they think they expect they'll be fired from. And, there's a, 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 a little element of everybody in the diner is are like young people wearing ties and dresses and it doesn't really call attention to itself but you get the idea that because they're high school dropouts they're missing an event like a homecoming or a prom that's going on outside of their world and the movie draws no attention to it but it's a little bit of detail that says there is a little bit of a depressing like uh, nature that they aren't really doing the same things as their peers and that they're kind of lost on this journey while other people are living these kind of somewhat more magical lives in them. Uh, I found that element at least signaled to me that the director had a little bit more on her mind than, Mm -hmm. than just making a comedy. And I I really appreciated that. But is it funny? Yes. (laughs) Okay. It is. Yes. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the movie that has the biggest chasm between how excited people seem to see it (laughs) and how much they hated it. And that's Ophelia. Yeah. uh, I've generally had good experiences at Sundance in in that I've liked most of the movies I've seen and the movies I didn't like, I just kind of felt like whatever about this is the first movie I remember seeing at any Sundance that I actively hated. Uh, And, you know, if you're going to go 
Uh, if you're going to hate something, why not go big with a big splashy <laughs> premiere of a star-studded cast of a movie that completely from top to bottom does not work uh, in a way that like studio franchise kind of movies don't. Like this made me think of like Pan or something or one of those like hopefully launching a franchise kind of movies that's like a reimagining that's so purely misguided. It, I can't imagine how this became such a passion project through independent financing, which is uh, much naughtier to acquire. Um, so yeah, this is kind of telling the story of Hamlet from Ophelia's perspective. Ophelia is played by Dizzy Ridley. Um, but without giving too much away, I mean, I, I can say that it tries to make Ophelia like this modern, empowered young woman, uh, which is not terribly held up by the text, um, but fine. But the spaces that are most left in Shakespeare's text are why specifically what drove uh, Ophelia to madness and eventually possibly suicide. And the solution it comes up with to those questions is so deranged and off kilter and off base from what the play is about uh, that it's just ridiculous and it makes a terrible argument for the decisions it makes. Um, you do get to see Naomi Watts play a dual role as a witch and a queen, which is exciting, uh, but not enough to save the rest of the really terrible movie. Um, all right. So my, um, <clears throat> my first ever midnight movie experience at Sundance was this year where I, where I saw Nicholas Pesch's piercing. I was dying to come to you with you to this, but I couldn't make it. This was one of, one of my, this is probably my most anticipated, I guess, of the movie, of the, of the festival, because I had loved the eyes of my mother, the movie he made yeah. two years ago. Um, uh, or the premiered at Sundance two years ago. Um, and piercing is, uh, I mean, like the eyes of my mother, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's plenty, uh, bloody and people, people suffer in this movie, but unlike the eyes of my mother, it's funny, um, which at first I had a problem with the movie's only like 80 minutes long. Um, the premise is Christopher Abbott plays a guy who is, um, a, I guess, functioning psychopath who, um, is going on a quote unquote work trip, but really he's going uh, to carry out something he's been planning for months or possibly years, which is to uh, hire a prostitute and murder her. Um, and he voices of telling him what to do. He's he's a he's a crazy guy. Um, and so much of the first like ten, 10 to fifteen minutes about which is about him planning this is like darkly very funny, but also it made me sick to my stomach in the sense that I, I was just thinking like about. I guess where the cultural conversation is now in terms of like, you know, violence against women by men and the fact that this was kind of funny was like, I'm not sure if I can, <clears throat> I was like, I'm not sure if I can watch a whole movie about this. Um, I was, I was like, I'm glad this is short. I was sitting there. I was like, I, 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 I was like, I'm not going to like this movie. Uh, and then Mia Vashikovska shows up as the, as the prostitute. And then shortly after that, which shouldn't have surprised me. Things take a complete left turn, uh, and it becomes a very different movie. And from that point on, I was eating it up. It's um, uh, I, I don't want to give too much away, except to say that um, her character is not a great deal more sane than his is, um, and it becomes kind of uh, it becomes really kinky. Like obviously, this is a movie, but you know people stabbing each other like when i say really kinky i mean really kinky um but also kind of i guess uh, in a way almost like a romance but a very twisted it's based on a novel by the same guy who wrote the novel audition that oh. movie is is based on so um 
so you know you have an idea of the of the sensibility but um is it quite as unbearable to watch uh, as I've audition? I've actually never seen Audition. Oh, jeez. Um, but this is, no, this is actually quite nice to watch because the production design is uh, meticulous. It's very 1970s. I think the movie is supposed to take place now, but um, maybe not because there are no cell phones. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, almost every exterior shot is um, miniatures of a city that he, like, uh, I did stay for this Q&A unadvisedly because then it took me fucking forever to get home at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, or back to the condo at 2 o'clock in the morning. But he built, you know, Nicholas Pesh built these miniatures and, 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 and shot little scenes of what's going on inside different rooms and projected them onto the back of the miniatures. Um, all the music, it's not, uh, it's score, but it's not original score. It's music that uh, is comes from different 70s Italian giallo films. So it's very sort of, uh, lively music and very moody uh, music. Um, the whole thing has a, a throwback feel that is also very now. It doesn't feel kitschy or tongue-in-cheek throwback. It feels like... But it also doesn't feel like homage. It feels like its own thing. It kind of reminded me um, of... In a very, very different way, it kind of reminded me of The Love Witch in the sense that it's like a movie that is a, that is wholly its own thing but also wholly uh, indebted to the things that it's paying uh, homage to. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a crazy movie where people like bleed a lot and stab each other and beat the shit out of each other and has crazy flashback hallucinations. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, but you know, uh, you know, uh, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Uh, it's <laughs> it's not easy to watch if you're squeamish. But uh, I, I I feel like I'm going on, but I, I don't want to stop talking about this movie. Uh, it's um. It's and I said this in my review, and I, I'm gonna. I feel like people are gonna think that I. People when they see the movie, are gonna think that I'm a fucking psycho. But it's the sexiest movie that I've seen since The Handmaiden, <laughs> oh. which is also a, you know a, a kinky movie, but tremendously sexy. Uh, yeah, um, uh, but I think uh, I'm a fan of Christopher Abbott, and I'm a huge fan of Mia Vazakowska going back to uh, all the way to In Treatment, um, uh, and and I've enjoyed her uh, career. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they have great chemistry together and, uh, yeah, definitely check out, uh, piercing. All right. Next up, uh, is, uh, I think Dan saw this, uh, the queen of fear. Yes. Uh, uh, the queen of fear is, it was a world cinema pick. I forget what country it's from. Um, it's from Argentina and Denmark. Um and classic pairing. Yes. Uh and it's 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 uh directed uh and starring um Valeria but- uh Berticelli. She and she wrote it as well. Okay. Um and it's this film about a uh You don't mean Valerie Bertinelli. <laughs> no. Okay. Um uh it's this film about uh a theater actress or a well regarded theater actress who's about to do a one woman show, but She's not written anything or planned anything, and and the opening night is like looming, like it's it's within a day or so, and she has nothing prepared, and it's kind of about how every part of her life is kind of um, uh, breaking down, and she's fearful of everything in her life, and it's just kind of chaos when she's at her home. This kind of uh, sprawling apartment complex that she seems to live in on her by herself. 
there's like constantly people gardening everywhere. She at one point in the movie like leaves her apartment and they've built what seems to be a hedge maze in her front yard for no apparent reason. Um, and it's interesting because it's kind of about what it's like to have like a breakdown or have your life kind of fall apart in while being in a, a job or career or some kind of system that is so structured like theater, um, that doesn't really allow for you to kind of, um, have this kind of, uh, like a crisis, especially in like a, like a one woman show where you're expected to kind of do everything. Um, I found that interesting, but I, I was frustrated in this movie by, how many subplots there are. It mm-hmm. seems like every five minutes there's a new character introduced with very little exposition about who they are and what their role in this woman's life is. So it's, it's nearly impossible to follow like all these moments. And the director seems to not really take a mu- enough into account that you might not know who this person is that just showed up. Uh-huh. Like they, there's constant reference to this woman's husband and it, and she's always afraid at night that someone's going to break into her home. So at some point in the night she wakes up and there's someone in the home and she confronts this person and then seems to really know who they are and, and immediately, you know, calms down. But this person, she's like, I'd say like in her late thirties, but this man is in his late sixties. So I thought, Oh, it must be like her father or something. It's her husband, but they never says it's her husband. And the, (laughs) the age difference is enough to make you really question, like not to immediately jump to, Oh, that's her husband. And that's like throughout this movie. There's so many of these things where I'm just like, okay, what what is the relationship with these people? I I can't quite get to it immediately. Um, and I remember we left the theater and, uh, and all these people, Oh, it was wonderful. It was, it was just like the typical Sundance reaction. Every, <laughs> everything is wonderful. And I said, Oh, well I, I couldn't really figure out what this movie was really about. Um, and, cause it has a very kind of ambiguous ending. And I said, you know, but you seem to understand, you know, what it was about, what was your interpretation? And, I don't really know. I just thought it was beautiful. You know, this very shallow reading of the film. And I think about, I'm thinking about it now. It's not really stuck with me, um, mainly because I, I'm not really sure what it was a film about. Um, but the act, the performances are beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. And is it some, in Spanish or Danish? It's in Spanish. Okay. And there, there are some, um, some like wonderful back and forth scenes about, kind of being a, uh, you know, a younger woman in, in modern day and, you know, uh, the sacrifices of having a family and things like that, that are relatable. I just think it's a piece. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Okay. Um, I forgot to mention piercing was my fifth favorite of the festival. <laughs> uh, now on to my second favorite. So now we'll have one through five and seven. This is really uh, coming together of, for me. Uh, of my top seven. Um, my second favorite of the festival uh, is Tamara Jenkins' Private Life. Am I the only one who yep. saw I it? I heard a lot about this. Uh, I, I, you guys missed out, man. Um, it, it, it played before I got there and after I was there. Yeah. Um, it's Tamara Jenkins' first film since The Savages, which is 11 years ago, I think. Um, yeah. Did she ever address, were you, did you say for the Q&A to address uh, why no, that I happened? I was at P&I, so there was okay. no Q&A or anything. Um, uh, it, it was my only time in the newly rechristened Park Avenue Theater, the whole... Uh, the whole festival. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, was, it's the same theater. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the, uh, this is like way, way insider. Yeah. Listeners don't care. But the, um, 
the pre-recorded announcements on the shuttles still say Yarrow. Yeah. So oh. maybe next year it'll have the theater name right. Until then, I'm going to keep calling it the Yarrow. <laughs> uh, or uh, I won't have any cause to reference it for now, <laughs> between now and next year anyway. So I'm done. Anyway, um, so yeah, <clears throat> it's... Uh, yeah, Tamara Jenkins' first film since The Savages. Um, like The Savages, it's a um, sort of uh, uh, familial, domestic, um, tragicomic uh, movie. It's a story about uh, Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti played a, a married couple in their 40s who are both artists. She's a writer, he's a theater director, and they've and they're trying, you know, in their 40s, trying to have kids. They had put off having kids because of their careers or whatever. Uh, they're trying to have kids is not going well. Um, and, and, and they've tried uh, at the beginning of the movie, they're trying, uh, IVF. Um, uh, the great Dennis O'Hare plays their fertility doctor. Um, and then eventually they come around to the idea of a donor egg. Um, and by eventually, I mean, this is like halfway through the movie by the time this even happens almost. Um, and they land on as a possible donor their step niece, uh, Paul Giamatti's stepbrother, played by John Carroll Lynch, and his wife, played by Molly Shannon, have uh, a daughter that is um, has always been close to them because she's also an aspiring writer artist type, and so she's um, she's very close to her, her aunt and uncle, and is no blood relation, which is important. Is I guess. she played uh, by anybody interesting? Uh, no, it's a it's a I, I think a debut performance uh, in terms of. Young actresses making their debuts, second only to Helena Howard. Her name is Kaylee Carter, I think. Um, a lot of superhero names going around. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, it's a fantastic performance. Um, uh, and the movie is, yeah, very funny, um, but uh, in a way, like, like with The Savages, um, which was an improvement on The Slums of Beverly Hills, which was her first feature that I liked, but um, never entirely loved because it felt... Uh, to go back to something Scott was saying earlier, it feels very '90s that movie. Um, you know, uh, some of the stuff is a little bit uh, uh, tough to swallow. Anyway, um, but uh, I forgot what I was what I was saying. Oh yeah, like the savages, it's very funny, but all of the comedy comes out of the characters and their conflicts. Um, and so there are uh, a lot of very intense and painful scenes of people upset with each with each other, but even then they're not, they're often not even really yelling at each other. They're just sort of, they're going through some shit, uh, together and sometimes at odds with one another. And it's sometimes very painful to watch, but also very heartening when they're on the same page. Um, and it's also a movie that, like I said, so Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti are, if you are the leads of the movie, but it often feels like an ensemble movie because, uh, it is so interested in, in Molly Shannon's character and John Carrollage and Kaylee Carter. Um, Less so in Dennis O'Hare. He's mo- mostly uh, comic relief as a prog rock loving fertility doctor. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I'll address the main complaint that I saw from critics on Twitter, which is that it's over long because it is like two hours and 10 minutes or something. Is there a lot of prog rock in it? Uh, no, there's really <laughs> just the one scene when he's sort of half singing along to a prog rock song while he's uh, doing the what do you call it? Uh, he's like inserting the fertilized egg into, uh, into Catherine Hahn <laughs> and just sort of half singing along. That to. could take a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and I, I, 
I so I loved the film as, you, as I said it's my second favorite of the entire festival and it was my favorite up until the last film I saw uh, even though it was the second film I saw and I would have been perfectly happy I would have considered this a successful Sundance if I had gone home with this being my second favorite I think it's the best of Tamara Jenkins career and not only do I not agree with the people who think it's over long I think it its length is absolutely essential to what it is because it's a, it, it's this is an epic struggle this is something that we need to go through all of with these with these two people to really i think get into their into their skin there's so many hopes risen and then dashed and uh there's so many different things that other characters have to process you know um like molly shannon is not entirely cool with uh her daughter uh donating an egg to her uh husband's stepbrother (laughs) you know um and i think the movie really uses every minute of its of its length um uh and is it's one of those um films that you could because it doesn't have i don't know international travel or explosions or anything you know it doesn't have big costumes or anything it could be seen as sort of a small or intimate film but it actually encapsulates something that's uh it enormous and so it it feels like a small epic to me uh these i think com- it, i think it's beautiful it's really these awesome. complainers sound like the same people that weren't on the zodiac train <laughs> but 10 years ago right this is the zodiac of of fertile <laughs> infertility uh comedies i've been waiting for that <laughs> uh yeah so private life and that's unfortunately that's another netflix one um so it's going to come and go i'm sure uh which really bothers me yeah uh, um yeah uh, it was kind of a bummer to like be like the movie started with the netflix thing but it also ends with the netflix logo and that oh, was like yeah. a real like uh gut punch like i was in, in the glow of this movie that i absolutely loved and it's like boom and like oh right <laughs> um anyway uh that was a d- half decent impression of the netflix sound oh thank you yeah <laughs> um Seeing All Red is the next one. That's me, and that's another Netflix movie. Oh, is it? I thought it was yeah. an HBO. Okay, it's Netflix. No, it's Netflix. Um, this movie is about Gloria Allred um, and is probably everything you would fear a documentary about <laughs> Gloria Allred would be. Um, as someone who like likes following Gloria Allred and her kind of loud feminism uh you know i i she was in the theater sitting watching the movie with us just a row away you know and and gave out free tickets and was you know with gloria and she's looking for attention and she got it in the theater (laughs) um you know the movie uh it you know, Gloria Allred for, you know, every person who loves her, there's someone that really doesn't like her. And maybe it's more weighted that way. Um, but the movie does very little to address the criticisms of Gloria Allred. It's kind of a puff piece, uh, about her, um, with very little, um, insight into her, like, I guess, um, inner thinkings or how she prepares for things or what her goals are. There's some interesting information about her, um, her upbringing, which gives you a new perspective on who she is. And, and it's interesting to follow her kind of like growth of her public persona, which is, I didn't know much about. Um, and I, I found that fascinating, but it felt very shallow to me. Um, and it really tries really hard to make Gloria Allred one of the, you know these heroes of the resistance, which may, maybe she is, but it's, a, it, it's, it's 
protesting a little too much, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, about it. Um, you know, and it really focuses on the, um, the, her role in like the Cosby, um, you know, uh, scandal and bringing all those women forth. Mm-hmm. But, it never really goes beyond what everybody you've already saw on television, which is frustrating because we all saw those women doing these press conferences. And I wanted to know more about the story behind that. So, uh, I'm sure people will watch it on Netflix as a kind of, you know, well, it's 80 some minutes and I'll maybe learn something. and It'll be a light afternoon fair. But, um, you know, I went because I didn't have anything else to do you know, uh, well, I didn't have anything else to do, but <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll just go to this and, and cause it's right here. And uh, it, it wasn't offensive, but like, I, it's not going to rock anyone's boat. Um, well, the next thing I saw is going to rock some boats. Um, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's called sorry to bother you. Uh, it's directed, it's the directorial feature directorial debut of musician boots Riley. Uh, and it is an, um, a, very broad and not at all subtle uh, anti-capitalism satire um, in which uh, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, again, um, plays a, an, an Oakland guy who gets a, a job at a telemarketing uh, firm um, and quickly becomes one of the biggest uh, salesmen because he learns how to use his white voice. Um, voiced by David Cross. I'm so <laughs> curious about where this goes. I don't want to go all the way where it goes because it keeps getting weirder. If there's any complaint I have about Sorry to Bother You is that it feels longer than it is because it just its plot just keeps elevating. Every time you feel like, are we getting to a resolution? It's like, oh no, there's a whole other level of this. Um, <laughs> Does that uh, wear out its welcome after a I while? I don't think so. But, uh, your mileage may vary. I liked it. Um, uh, again, it's... I think you have to be on board with its politics and its um, offbeat sense of humor because it's, again, it's not the least bit subtle, uh, but that's not, it's not trying to be. I'm, I think that's, it is what it needs to be um, as a term of, as a, as a, as a, as a piece of like uh, protest art or whatever. That's also very enjoyable to watch. Uh, so he keeps moving up the ladder and ends up finding, you know, this company that he, uh, is works for as a telemarketer is involved in like international arms <laughs> like and so he keeps selling bigger and bigger and more morally questionable shit um, and then there's a whole other stuff that I haven't even talked about with like Army Hammer is in it uh, as like a uh, uh, I guess he's supposed to be sort of like a, a Silicon Valley type like Mark Zuckerberg type but like super fucking obnoxious um and not the mark Zuckerberg, i don't know if mark Zuckerberg is obnoxious or not but what do you get how, how is the david cross uh voice handled is it it's, is it believably this character's no, voice it's intentionally not. <laughs> okay, okay that's what i was it curious is intentionally about intentionally often not even in sync uh, oh wow that, yeah, okay that's, part of the, that's interesting part of the fun of it um tessa thompson plays uh, his his girlfriend uh steven yoon yun from the walking dead plays a uh uh, in a reminiscent of Bisbee 17, he plays a labor organizer um, and rabble rouser. Uh, there's a bunch of other, Danny Glover uh, is in it um, saying fuck more than I've ever heard Danny Glover say fuck. <laughs> That's great. And, and he also does at one point say I'm too old for this shit. Oh, wow. or I think he says I'm too old for that shit, but I got a big laugh in the audience. Of course, do uh, we ever get and this might be a spoiler. Do we ever get the reverse of this where we meet a white person with um, <laughs> no. a black man's voice? No, no. Um, yeah, there aren't really many white characters in the movie 
and those who are generally not good guys yeah. or, or gals. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I haven't even gotten to some of the the weirder stuff that involves some really good uh, uh, special effects makeup um, and mixed with clearly some uh, uh, pretty good for an indie um, CG. Uh, That's not where I was expecting you were going to go. No, yeah, it, it, it gets it gets strange. Um, and I definitely uh, enjoy it. Again, your mileage may vary because you could find this movie incredibly obnoxious, uh, but I tended to be on its on its wavelength uh, a lot. Um, and it was picked up by Annapurna, which is seems like a weird fit to me because Annapurna, I, I don't know, they tend to, I feel like Annapurna tends to work with uh, established directors, not a lot of first I mean, timers. But they're also just getting their foot in the distribution door. They really only just did Detroit, so. That's true. They don't have a brand yet. Um, and they also and, uh, did Professor they, Marston, right? That's was, right. Yeah. Them? yeah. And they also did produce Sausage Party. So, you know. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. This is better than Sausage Party. It's definitely well, that's smarter good. than Sausage Party. That's a relief. Um, and funnier if you like a certain kind of uh, of, of humor. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed Sorry to Bother You. Um, I, I, hope it, I, ho- I hope it takes off. All right. Next up is a movie called Sweet Country. I saw that one. This is an Aboriginal Australian Western. Um, I don't know if that conjures any images in your mind, um, but it's a, about this uh, these these three um, uh, I guess uh, tracts of land that are all butting up against each other, and two of them are owned by these white cowboyish figures and one by this uh, aboriginal man and uh, one of the 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 white cowboyish figures is new and he's quite racist and aggressive and um, approaches all of these all of his neighbors under the like guise of mainly his aboriginal neighbors under the guise of I could really use your help getting my farm up and running and then the minute they step onto his property treats them as though they're his slaves and mm-hmm. orders them to do these things quite abusively um taking advantage of their wives and daughters and eventually um one of them just can't take it anymore and m- murders him and it is a kind of like fleeing the police film um, that is uh, slow and ponderous and beautiful in the way that I love my Westerns to be. Um, and I yeah. really enjoyed this film. Um, I, I think it has a really stellar ending uh, that I don't want to reveal uh, anything about. And uh, um, it was a real surprise for me. I had no expectations for it. And uh, and this is when I, I, I don't know if anybody's going to see, but I... I um, Same deal uh, in it? Sam Neill is yeah. in it, yeah, and it's um, um, uh, from the director of um, oh, what is the name of that movie? Delilah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> Delilah is one of the names uh, of the characters in the title of this movie, um, and you're looking it up right now, and I guess we're going to find yeah. out in just a second. Um, I'm just wasting time talking. The director is Warwick Thornton. There you go. And Samson and Delilah. There you go. Samson and Delilah. How did I forget that? Which is another really great film, um, which is also 
uh, about um, Aboriginals in um, Australia, and to the bo- both the writers of the film were are uh, ab- Aboriginal. Um, so you get a very dis- you know, distinct look at that community um, in Australia. So uh, I, not something I was expecting anything from, but quite liked it. Uh, all right, moving on to my sixth favorite movie of the festival, <laughs> and the other one that the uh, person announcing got the director's name wrong. This is Jennifer Fox's, not Jennifer Cox's, right. The Tale, uh, which is the movie that I, I skipped Leave No Trace, the new Deborah Granick that I was so looking forward to, to see The Tale, because everyone... I talked to multiple people who had seen both at that point, and they were like, you need to see The Tale. Uh, and I'm glad I did. Um, Scott, you were there. Yeah, and... Um- better vantage point than yourself <laughs> yeah i barely made it i was rushing from uh what was i on my way for? i think it was from i think we're alone now um and i barely like i was in the line and they were you know clearly like letting people settle right. letting people in in chunks they were like all right 10 more i'd move up all right 10 more and then one point it was like all right five more <laughs> i moved up and then i was three people from the front and it said okay three more and so i think i might have been the last person it wow. certainly seemed like it when you came in <laughs> to to get into this so i ended up sitting in the front row off to the side yeah not a great vantage point uh at uh, at that particular theater but i'm so glad i went to see it this is um uh, i guess an autobiographical um uh you know memoir of a movie uh jennifer fox uh, laura dern plays jennifer fox a documentarian who is re-examining and confronting uh, a um an experience from her childhood when she was uh, sexually abused uh, as a 13-year-old by a 40-year-old man played by uh, Jason Ritter. Um, And I hesitated to say sexually abused because part of the the, the story is that that's not how she initially viewed it because she's still, she hasn't processed this since she was 13. She's still thinking of it as a 13 year old, including, uh, in fact, one of the most interesting things it does is the, the flashbacks initially start with an older actress. Yeah. And it's not until her mother shows her a picture of what she looked like when she was 13. that she realizes how young she was. And from that point on, the flashbacks are this younger actress. Um, and there are a couple of little tricks like that, that I think were, uh, were well done. Um, uh, I feel like there was something else I was going to say. Um, oh yeah, just to name some more members of the cast, you've got um, so Jason Ritter plays the forty-year-old in the flashbacks, and the present day he's played by the late John Hurd um, uh, in one of his last roles. Uh, and then um, you've got Elizabeth, the great Elizabeth Debicki from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, <laughs> and the Night Manager uh, right. as the young uh, uh, woman who is her. Uh, horse riding coach and then you've got uh uh francis conroy right that's his name francis conroy it sounds like a name the modern day in she only has a handful of short scenes but i think she's quite it makes a real impact yeah she's terrific in in, in that um as is ellen burston as uh jennifer's mother yeah. uh, who i think is really exceptional yeah weak link common as uh, her fiance. Yeah. In the present I mean, day. the part's kind of whatever yeah. and no actor could make that really stand out. I like to imagine that he's playing the same character from John wick two. And when he's quote unquote going to Atlanta to record, <laughs> he's really going to kill motherfuckers right. um, in Rome or whatever. Um, uh, all right. So, uh, I've talked too much. Scott yeah. Well, I was just going to add about, <laughs> yes, you Ellen. agree. I talked too much. <laughs> uh, I was going to add that Ellen Burstyn, I think, plays really well at difficult range of emotions of hearing for the first time about this relationship at all that her daughter had had, because of course the, 
I feel bad referring to this character because it's very autobiographical, but I think for the purposes of identifying this as a narrative film, the character um, hid the relationship for years simply because, you know, she rightly viewed it as kind of scandalous as the way any 13 year old would a relationship with an older man, which is all she kind of viewed it as until she kind of confronts it. But uh, Ellen Burstyn's performance kind of nicely moderates the difficulty of hearing this for the first time, trying to be supportive, but also kind of having an internal breakdown about it and her responsibility and complicity in uh, not really doing anything when she saw some flags go up. Um, I think the movie's, at its best at, in the being about memory and uh, repressing trauma and the way it kind of uh, flows out and explodes towards the end is tremendously affecting. Um, it, but I, I do think it's off to a pretty rocky start. Like the introduction of her profession is so left field from where the movie eventually That's goes. True. Yeah. I kind of forgot that scene. was. I know there. it's yeah. like, it doesn't belong at all. And there's, there's a lot of other dramatic stuff in terms of establishing the characters and the relationship to one another that's handled really roughly. It's, I think it's Jennifer Fox's first narrative feature. Yeah. Uh, and it definitely shows, um, but it gets it right where it counts. And I, I think it's, uh, a pretty, pretty, uh, good film. Uh, not, I don't think it's as exceptional as a lot of people are saying, but in, in the ways in which they're excited about, it, I totally am on board. Yeah. I think it's powerful enough that it might be the most impactful film I think when it comes out. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, the subject matter alone. Um, yeah. but I, I mean, I hate to be a dick about it, but it doesn't matter the way it's told. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, but I think there's, is a purpose to the way it's told. Oh, that, for sure. That, like it's, cause it's very straightforward. Uh, even though I talked about there being like tricks, uh, in terms of the, the, the framing and a lot of the dialogue, it's not obfuscating or, uh, being pretentious about anything. It's, it's, it's very straightforward. Um, including it has, you know, sex scenes between a four year old and a 13 year old. They're, you know, I think hopefully done, uh, with the, you know, safety of the 13 year old. You might not have seen the card from way down below, but they actually said they had an adult body double um, in the scenes where you can clearly see the two of them together. I mean, a lot of it is done just through like separation of camera, right? um, Different shots, but Um, there are a couple shots where they use a double. Um, Oh, that was at the end. That yeah. Card. Okay. Yeah. Someone else. Yeah. I, I went to another screening. I, I, yeah, I must have not been able to read that. Yeah. Because at the, I was talking to another screening and someone said, I'll bet when that comes out in the theater, that card is at the beginning of the movie. Uh, uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Like the, like the thing at the beginning of Amoris Peros, if anyone remembers that about, never uh, saw it. Uh, well, there's a lot of scenes of dog fighting and they oh, have okay. a disclaimer before the movie starts saying no dogs were, were harmed. Um, anyway, um, there was something else I was going to say. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't, uh, just to, I mean, I, talk, I talked about the filmmaking being straightforward, but the way it approaches the subject matter is very personal as opposed to being, this is a movie quote unquote about sexual abuse. It's yes, really sure. more about the, I, the, the, the complicated idea of victimhood. Um, I think, you yeah. know, and, and she's, I think it's part of what I was saying about the repression of trauma. Yeah. It's one of the strongest points is yeah. The coming to terms with the fact that you're a victim of anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's really powerful stuff. I think it'll, I think it'll make an impact, but I already said that. All right. Uh, movie I was planning to see and didn't get into, uh, white rabbit. Yes. I, I saw white. Rabbit. I know uh, the one yeah. I saw you at the festival was you were coming out of white rabbit. I was sitting in the hotel lobby writing or trying to, the wifi was spotty. <laughs> yes. Well, it was spotty everywhere this year. Um, yeah. White rabbit was a real surprise for me. Um, you know, it, I, it was advertised as, as if it was this strange, 
like trippy movie. Yeah. And it was not that at all. I found it very humanist. Um, and, uh, it's about this, uh, young Korean woman or Korean American woman who, um, is a performance artist and she goes to public places and does her performance art. And, uh, a lot of it centers around, um, I guess, her um, anger about how Korean Americans were depicted during the LA riots. Um, and that's almost immaterial to the movie, um, but, but interesting. Um, and, you know, you get kind of a day to day vibe from her, but it, it may largely focuses around this um, young woman that she meets, who's also an artist or a photographer Um who is a, she's an African woman, um, I guess African American woman. Uh, but she, it's implied that she, uh, doesn't really consider herself like a, an American quite fully. Anyway, they form this, uh, uh, relationship, um, that appears to be romantic, um, from the, uh, you know, in the way it's depicted and, and I don't want to get into, uh, how that develops, but it, it takes an interesting route. Um, but it's very, uh, it's funny. And, um, there's scenes that remind me of like, you know, like a before sun sunrise before sunset kind of thing with this uh, smart banter between the two. And it's, uh, you know, it's like refreshingly, uh, shot. All the colors are very crisp and fun to look at. And, uh, but really, the the takeaways the two lead performances they're just these two actors are who are um, just so um, entertaining to watch and uh, you know, the, the direction isn't really like something to really notice but they, you can't help but fall in love with these two people even if they ultimately frustrate you by the end and um, I'll say that the the ending of the movie I think really lets one of its characters. Um, off the hook for um, actions that they commit in a way that I mm. um, didn't, like I said, didn't really immorally align with where the movie ultimately landed. Um, and I think that could, that could become on a case by case basis, but it frustrated me that one of the characters just gets left off, let off the hook so easily. It might not be very modern of me, but uh but I did find it frustrating. You'll know it when you see it, whether you agree or not. Um, but a surprising movie for me that I was not hoping or really expecting much from, and um, which seems to be my Sundance experience, which was <laughs> I didn't really have anything to expect anything from this movie, and I was pleased by it. Um, yeah. Um, I was, like I said, I was supposed to see it. I was on my way to it from Monsters and Men when I got an email from the publicist who was supposed to have a ticket waiting for me saying, yeah. sorry, we're full. Uh, we can't give you that ticket, we promised. So I just went and got Chinese food instead. <laughs> well, I so hope that it, um, you know, I, I'm not quite sure what its market will be, but I, I so hope that people get to see it because I think they're really going to be captured by these two performances. Uh, moving on, the penultimate movie of the episode, Wildlife. Yeah. Um, That's just Scott, right? I think so. Uh, this is uh, Paul Dana's directorial debut, and I, I think I was uh, nervous, as we all are, anytime an actor directs a movie. Uh, but this is—I was really impressed. It's really smartly handled. Uh, it knows when to restrain itself, which is incredibly unusual in these types of movies. Um, it's about a 14-year-old boy growing up in the 1960s, uh, who's 
his family's kind of moved around a lot as his father's kind of tried to find his place, uh, tried to find the right job, the right fit. He's kind of stubbornly set on finding a certain ideal that he can't quite place his finger on. Um, lately, they've been living in Montana. And he's uh, towards the beginning of the film gets fired from his latest job as kind of a groundskeeper at a golf course. I think that's his job. I came in a couple of minutes late. He works at a golf course. <laughs> um, uh, and so he kind of starts laying around the house, doesn't really know what to do. Uh, his The boy's mother, played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, did I say the father was Jake Gyllenhaal? Father Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. Uh, mother's played by Carrie Mulligan. Um, she starts looking for work. The boy starts looking for work, too, which kind of sets Gyllenhaal's character off to the extent that he decides to join uh, the fire department and go fight wildfires in the forests of Montana, um, which have, as with many Western states, these kind of seasonal bursts. Um, and so he disappears for a good section of the movie. And it's just uh, the boy and the mother kind of trying to figure out where their lives are and where to go next with them. Um, Mulligan's character is about Mulligan's age. She's 34. And so 14, you do the bath. She had the kid at 20, mm-hmm. probably got married at 18 or 19. And, most of her life has been most of her adult life has been raising this kid. And you kind of sense that she's coming to terms with the fact that her youth has completely passed her by. And she's trying to reclaim a little bit of that at this point where it's the worst stage possible where the kids, you know, he's starting to grow up, but he's still very much a kid. And the movie navigates better than most movies I've seen about teenagers, that unusual space of being 13, 14, 15, where you are, do still feel like a kid in a lot of ways, but are ready to take on a couple more responsibilities. You just don't know, what you're ready for yet until you have to face them. Um, so yeah, it's a really smartly told movie. Carrie Mulligan is exceptional uh, in the part. And I hope uh, she'll to go back to Oscar talk. I hope she'll be duly rewarded towards the end of the year. Um, yeah. I was really impressed with it overall. Wow. And finally, a, a woman captured. I'm, I'm going to say I actually have, two more movies to talk about. Uh, but they're not, you should have told, I'm sure I, alphabetically. I, I, no, actually it will. Oh, okay. Uh, because I saw a woman captured and you were never really, uh, here. Oh, yeah. I think it got cut off in the email. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you're right. There are two. Okay. So yeah, they're both yours. Uh, a woman captured first. Okay. Uh, well, a woman captured is a, maintain some, you know, order here. <laughs> yes, I, w- I want to be sure. Uh, so A Woman Captured is uh, a Hungarian documentary um, about this uh, woman who, this older woman, well, I say older, but she's in her 50s, but she looks like she is 80. But she has been, um, is one of many, I would say, slaves of this, um, this well-to-do Hungarian family um, that uh, attracted attention by this documentarian because she overheard this this matriarch of the household bragging that she is able to maintain several slaves in her house that take care of all of her work for her. And this documentarian found her way to be invited into this home to film under the rules that she will not show anybody's face except for this woman, the, the center of the woman, ca- a woman captured, um, who's the main focus of the documentary. Um, and it's interesting because when the, the word slave and, and the kind of role she plays, I think we really imagine something quite different when that, when, when you hear that she's really a slave to her own fear about leaving this, um, home and what this family might do to her. Um, 
and uh, that she has nowhere to go. All of the money she makes working her 40-plus-hour-a-week job goes to this family, um, and then she works all night long. She's getting maybe four hours of sleep on their couch um, in their home with a number of other people who we never really see hmm. who are also in similar situation as her. Um, and what's fascinating is like just how much fear can really like sees you because the whole movie you're watching, you're thinking, why don't you just get out of here? They don't have her like tied up or anything. She could leave at any moment in time. She in fact goes to work and gets on the train, but somehow feels obligated to return to this family that is just abusing her. And there's a really interesting moment early in the movie where, uh, the young boy that lives in the home who we, we don't see, but we hear his voice. Um, breaks a, uh, a, a vase or a vase and uh, well, which is it? <laughs> I'm not sure it's one of the two you'll have to see it and find out um, and you hear his you know voice saying well we'll just blame it on you know the, this this woman and but then he approaches her and says like why are you sleeping on the couch a human being shouldn't sleep on the couch you should have your own bed so he is both participating in her abuse and kind of uh, coming to uh, the realization with you know in his young age that people shouldn't be treated this way, uh, but ultimately the documentarian convinces this woman that she needs to leave this family, so it turns into a bit of an escape uh, movie. Uh, you know, this woman kind of finding her way out of this scenario. Um, it's beautifully shot and um, and really interestingly shot because you can't show the faces of these characters in this home other than the main subject which is amazing that she got this footage in the first place um uh so she you know shows little pieces of their their them their hands their jewelry um that gives you really an idea of their character um i would say i love this movie except that i really wanted more information about it the setup for why this woman would be so fearful of this family is never really fully established in a way that i found to be satisfying and maybe there's no amount of logic that could clarify that for Mm -hmm. me but um it was nevertheless um frustrating um because when she does escape and not to spoil it a little bit the ramifications that she seems so fearful of never even seemed to remotely come true. Um, so I needed to understand more about how she got into this scenario in the first place and why she felt so trapped in it, which seemed to be key elements of the story for me. But still, it's, I'd say it's worth seeing. It's just missing like two chapters that would go a long way to fleshing it out. And there are other women like her in this house? Yeah, yeah, and men, too. Wow. We never see them, though. We hear their voices off the screen at moments, um, and, and they're implied to be there. But it really just focuses on one. Wow. And the Q&A was very interesting afterwards, obviously, because this woman had spent a year and a half in this home with these people. and managed to get one of them out, but said the other ones had no desire to leave um, because they had nowhere to go and, again, live in fear. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I've never seen a scenario presented like this. Um, so, very interesting movie. Now, finally. Okay, finally. Now, now, now that never, my voice is gone, yeah. Yeah, the uh, you were never really here. Um, did you get some water? 
I did, but I drank it all. Oh, okay. that's okay. I can be, I can be a little baritone. Uh, okay. Well, I'll give you a second to catch your breath to tell you. I, I already know the plot of the movie because I don't, uh, so don't go into detail just because okay. David knows about no, it. No, when I was at the airport waiting to go back, there was a guy at the table behind me at the Italian place where I was trying to eat pasta and write my Bisbee 17 review who was on the phone just telling loudly telling whoever he was talking to oh. like the entire plot I mean, you were never really here was it me um, no it wasn't <laughs> it, it wasn't you um but i was less annoyed at the spoilers than i was at the fact that i was trying to write this busy 17 review and i didn't need to be thinking about lynn ramsey's movie uh anyway what did you think uh it's my favorite film of the festival okay. right. by a mile um and i i'm i've liked lynn ramsey's work um I found a lot of it very cold, especially um, we need to talk about Kevin. And, but like in a way, I, res- I respect this movie. Really, it moved me, um, and I, I found it from from my perspective her most powerful um, work yet. Um, I, I, I remain eternally amused that Lynn Ramsey is this small Scottish woman who is so energetic about her movies. Uh, and yet she's making these like hugely depressing, traumatizing movies that seem completely counter to her personality. Um, but the movie itself is, um, it's like if you started taxi driver in the third act and just went from there. Um, and I mean, it's lit- I know it's literally Taxi Driver to begin with. The these it's about um, Joaquin Phoenix's character. I think his name is Joe, and he is uh, this like uh, a, a hitman who has a bit of a sordid past that we kind of see in this amazingly edited structure where we get these brief glimpses of his past that you know flit in and out of the movie and we never really get a full glimpse of and there you know all the images is pretty terrifying um and he's a pretty miserable fellow who you know engages in uh, autoerotic asphyxiation and and all these these other kind of sordid things um and he's tasked by this um I think it's a senator to uh, rescue his daughter from this, um, I guess, like underage sex den um, where she's been kidnapped. And, you know, within the first third of the movie, he is able to, you know, remove her from this, just like I said, in Taxi Driver, except from there, everything just gets increasingly worse. Uh, for everyone involved, uh, there's a lot of murder and death and beauty and um, trauma and uh, all of that is great, but it's where she takes chances um, with um, breaking tone, where the movie goes from being like really something special to like something I've never seen before. Um uh, there's a death scene halfway through the movie. I won't say what happens, okay. but she takes a chance with it that um, I, it, it was the moment that pushed it into rarefied territory for me. Um, I don't I don't want to tell any really tell anybody anymore because it's, yeah. I thought it was so fabulous. Um, I'm excited. Although I never saw we need to talk about Kevin. I solid like, movie. Yeah, solid uh, movie. Yeah. I love Ratcatcher. I really liked Mormon Caller. Uh, and then for some reason, I never got around to... We need to talk about Kevin. Um, I think we did, it, we did it, guys. We talked about every film that played I know. Fans. I know. It's except, pretty fabulous. Except Damsel. 
Right. Um, no, I actually also accept Hereditary, which is maybe... Yeah, that's uh, getting a lot of, one, lot of heat. One, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we need more good horror movies. Um, all right, so... Thanks, guys, for being here. This yeah. was fun. I enjoyed um, it. So you can find me at BattleshipRetention.com, which is where you can find, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, reviews of everything that I that I saw. Um, Dan might be contributing. Yeah, I'm going to try my best okay. to give you what I can. Uh, <clears throat> um, so we have some reviews from Dan. Uh, Scott's reviews are where? CriterionCast.com. I've reviewed about half the movies we talked about tonight. By the time of this recording, hopefully there'll be more by the time it goes up. Um, all right. Uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 